show this week. We've got something for everybody. We start with how the left is actually helping the U.S. coup in Venezuela. That is, if our phone call goes through and the opposition doesn't attack the electrical grid in Caracas, putting the entire capital in darkness, like they did last week when we tried to contact our first guest this week, who kindly rescheduled. So let's just hope it works. Then we'll try to figure out why every nation, no matter how poor, repays their country's debts, even to the detriment of their own citizens, even when their citizens vote to not repay their debts. We'll also have a report on Native Americans who are protesting Trump's wall, which slices through their land and threatens sacred burial sites. And we'll meet a couple of members of Chicago Youth Climate Strike, went on strike and didn't attend class yesterday instead having a rally against global warming in Grant Grant Park downtown as part of the youth climate strike that took place across the country. And we'll likely have the only conversation today, this week, or maybe even this year, on the Chilean feminist movement that you'll hear on the radio, which is too bad because Chile's feminists may be showing a way to organize that could change activism globally. We'll also have a moment of truth when Jeff Dorchin punches the face of the god of lies, and I'll get all touchy-feely about revolution, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. This week's live four-hour This is Hell is being broadcast from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now in a very clear and clean format at mixler.com forward slash this hyphen is hyphen hell. That's Mixler. Dot com forward slash this forward sl- or hyphen is hyphen hell. And it's also going to be a podcast in its entirety, sh- entirety shortly after our broadcast today at thisishell.com. On this week's This Is Hell, we are returning to Venezuela with a return guest on This Is Hell, journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner, who posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela. Lucas warns that the Global North left critique of authoritarianism in Venezuela serves as ideological cover for the current coup, an impending dirty war pushed by Washington. Yes, it's true, there were issues with Maduro's re-election, But there are issues with Trump's election, and we don't hear progressives and leftists in the U.S. saying it's okay if some foreign nation wants to invade and overthrow our elected government. And that, unfortunately, is what is being justified by those on the left who delegitimize Maduro's election, which was attended by international monitors. We'll figure out what's not right about the left and the global north's reaction to what is happening in Venezuela and actually get updated on what is happening in Venezuela when we have a return visit from Lucas. This is Lucas's third appearance on This Is Hell, including joining us in studio back in August 2017. Lucas is a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com and reports from Venezuela, and Lucas is going to do, to do what is unthinkable at any other media outlet, but This Is Hell. He's actually going to talk about the deadly impact of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. 
so that humanitarian aid wouldn't be needed if the U.S. simply lifted the sanctions. But again, that's not something you are going to hear anywhere else. And if this all sounds very familiar, yes, this is the intro I wrote for Lucas when he was supposed to appear on our show last week. But the power went out in Caracas because some right-wing jag attacked the power grid. And hell if I'm going to allow that kind of nonsense be rewarded by forcing me to rewrite Lucas's introduction. There's just not a chance. After we get caught up on what's taking place in Venezuela, hopefully, maybe, possibly, talking to Lucas in Venezuela, we hope. After what promises to be a very clear phone call to Caracas, we actually move on to a topic that is integral to the problems being faced by Venezuela and any nation in debt during our second hour. We'll talk to scholar, essayist, commentator, political economist, and Roar magazine founder Jerome Roos, author of Why Not default, the political economy of sovereign debt. No, seriously, why do so many poor nations prioritize repaying what are often unfair debts over the needs of their people? Why did Greece go from electing a political party who promised to hold a referendum on paying back their debt? The party won. The referendum was held. The voters spoke and said no to repaying uh, the debt or any bailout. And within a couple of weeks, the government that promised to listen to the people did the exact opposite of what the people asked no demanded. We'll try to figure out why paying debts is prioritized by even left-wing governments when we speak with Jerome, who is an LSE fellow in international political economy at the London School of Economics. And you can find out more about Jerome at JeromeRoos.com. Following our discussion on the global left's potential complicity in Trump's Venezuelan coup and our talk on sovereign debt and why repaying it seems paramount, in the third hour of this week's Hell, we start with the return of editor and staff reporter at Truthout, Candace Burned, who posted the article, A Tribal Camp in South Texas is Vowing to Resist Trump's Wall. We all heard all about Starved Rock and the, uh, or Standing Rock, Starved Rock, Standing Rock, and the uh, protests against the Keystone Pipeline last winter. We saw the violent videos of suppression by police and we saw the power of protesters by who temporarily stopped the inevitable and they brought attention to the devastating challenges facing our planet it turns out indigenous activists are protecting or protesting fossil fuel exploitation throughout the americas in fact right now they are protesting not climate change but trump's wall it appears trump will be circumventing all sorts of laws to ram the wall right through indigenous lands and sacred burial sites we'll find the intersection between indigenous rights and global warming and the wall and migration and probably plenty more when we talk to candace whose work has also appeared in several other publications as well as in truthouts anthology on police violence who do you serve? Who do you protect? Which we discussed with Candace during her first appearance on This Is Hell back in 2017. Candace received two awards from the San Francisco Press Club in November of last year and the Dallas Peace and Justice Center's annual journalism award in December 2016. This is Candace's third appearance on This Is Hell. Then, still in this week's third hour, we'll hear from student activists Anya Sastry and Isabella Johnson, state, lead, <clears throat> state leads of Youth Climate Strike Illinois. Youth Climate Strike is a youth-led national movement against climate change with state and local branches across the country. Yesterday, a Chicago Youth Climate Strike took place with students skipping school and on strike. They rallied at Grant Park downtown. We'll learn from the students who went on strike what Youth Climate Strike is all about their mission, their demands, and their solutions when we talk to Anya and Isabella. Follow Youth Climate Strike Illinois on Twitter at Climate Strike IL. Climate Strike IL. And find out more about Youth Climate Strike across the country 
at youthclimatestrikeus.org. That's youthclimatestrikeus.org. And in the final hour of this week's Hell, American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile, Brie Busk wrote the Roar magazine articles, Chile's feminists inspire a new era of social struggle, and Chile's feminist movement is here to stay, which are two parts of an ongoing series Brie is writing on Chilean feminism. In the face of machismo that has oppressed women in Chile, well, forever, or at least since the indigenous civilizations were destroyed, in the face of such machismo, Chilean feminism has had a long and difficult struggle. But recently, that struggle has had victory after victory. It's a vibrant feminist movement is now massively popular, and the central focus of the challenge to not only Chilean society and culture, but also to the Chilean presidency. And activists here in the States can learn from Chilean feminism as it has gone beyond intersectional and identity politics to a more multi-sectoral and transversal movement. Find out exactly what that is. We'll find out exactly what that is when we talk to Brie, who is a member of both Black Rose Anarchist Federation in the U.S. and Solidaridad in Chile. Find out more about Black Rose at blackrosefed.org blackrosefed.org. Then we'll wrap up the whole show with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff punches the face of the god of lies. And as I said earlier, I'll be getting all touchy-feely about the upcoming revolution. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, are you sweating over there and your hands are tingling? No, why? Oh, okay, no, it's just me. I'm just having a normal morning. Oh, sweet. Awesome. No, I'm just dizzy and it uh, feels like there is a brick inside of my head. Oh, uh, we need some healthy people working <laughs> on this damn show. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your Saturday morning hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is, ooh, good one, chips. According to an article headlined, these unexpected foods actually make the best hangover cures at the Australian website... 973fm.com.au The salt in the chips helps replenish the salt you lost from the previous night's drinking. Quote, The saltiness of the chips will help you get back to full health. <laughs> Good lord. Uh, the carbs of the protein will also help up help soak up all those gin and sodas. <laughs> This is the this is the this is the least uh, scientifically rigorous one we've ever. Ha- uh, shame on you, 973fm.com.au. Uh, so that makes this week's hangover cure chips because salt and protein. That, really, really, really. I mean, this is the one I'm most likely to use out of all the ones we've ever done. So uh, I can't six, salt it too much. Still six almonds. That's a great one. But I like how it's these unexpected foods actually make the best hangovers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, chips. That's a very unexpected food. I'm <laughs> curing your hangover. So unexpected. I don't believe it. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. Yet again, I have been proven wrong. I've done a complete disservice to myself and to everyone who I have ever associated with, everyone with whom I have ever interacted, because I made an incredibly inaccurate and naive assumption. I know that stupid phrase you should never assume because it makes an ass out of you and me. So I'm very embarrassed to say I've made a public ass of myself, and I'm very, very sorry if I made an ass of you as well. But I'm doubting I did because I have the utmost confidence by reading all your emails and your comments on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages that you are a hell of a lot smarter than me. So I seriously doubt you made the same asinine mistake that I've been making for a very, 
very long time. Not that I'm blaming others or deflecting for the stupid mistake I continually made for a very large portion of my life, but the mistake I made publicly, privately, and even in my moments of deepest self-reflection is one that is typically made by liberals, yellow dog Democrats, as I've heard them called, who cower and vote for any Democrat simply because they're a Democrat. I'm looking at you, Joe Biden supporters. The mistake I made is understandable. We're taught in school that if we are given objective and unquestionable knowledge and learn it by rote, we will come to the same conclusion. All of us will come to the same same inevitable conclusions that are somehow completely absent of all politics. We will then see some untarnished light which will show us the obvious direction, the clear path that needs to be taken that we can all universally with consensus rally around because its logic is unassailable. The mistake I made was assuming that if given the correct information, not some propaganda made by the other side, if I simply informed myself, my family, my friends, you, the listening audience of This Is Hell, then we would all take that information and make the appropriate steps towards some sort of truly transformative social change that addresses all of humanity's problems from poverty to violence to global warming. Not that those issues are disconnected in any way. In fact, they're becoming more and more connected every day as our planet burns up. But information alone does not cause change. There needs to be something else to motivate change. Technocrats don't motivate change. They motivate fixes to reinforce the broken system which they have jerry-rigged for their own benefit and that of their elite friends. We recently had Dr. Damaris Hill on our show. Damaris is author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, The Incarceration of African-American Women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. The book is a collection of poems about women who have been in prison or are currently incarcerated. One poem is to Asada Shakur, who is living in exile. Asada was, or maybe still is, a member of the Black Liberation Army, who back in the 70s was convicted and given a life sentence in the killing of a New Jersey state trooper despite Asada not actually shooting the officer. Asada was eventually found guilty after several trials that were either acquitted or dismissed, and she was sentenced to life in prison, but in 1979 she escaped. Five years later she pops up in Cuba, where she is granted asylum and still lives there to this day. Damaris writes Asada is not a murderer. There's no evidence that she murdered or shot anyone, particularly the state police officers who pulled over the car she was in. Before Shakur could exit the car, as the state police requested, she was shot through the shoulder with a double-barrel shotgun. According to medical examiners and the court, Shakur was shot when her hands were raised in the air, as the officers requested. Considering the evidence... Damaris writes, I am puzzled why the mention of her name continues to paralyze people with fear. Damaris adds that the FBI has recently increased the reward for Asada from $1 million to $2 million, dead or alive. In her poem to Asada, Damaris writes, Revolution ain't a date in a history book. It's an ivy that thorns, a lily that pricks, it stings, like the splash of a copper-colored girl running in a skinned knee, ruining her Easter dress. Revolution ain't got a thing to do with facts, it's all faith. Revolution is not a sweet-tooth craving, it is a long fight, clouded in fear. It is hundreds of hornets. It is a family hunting you. Now, while I think facts may still have a thing to do with revolution, 
Revolution can't be revolution without the passion, without the feeling. It can't be an algorithm or a recipe that can be made anywhere and cooked up at any time with anyone. It may not even be rational or logical. It may make us as irrational as sex does. Which brings us back to last week's conversation with Adrienne Marie Brown on pleasure activism and making the revolution feel good. And our conversation earlier this year with Astra Taylor about her new film, What is Democracy? And the question posed, is this what democracy is supposed to feel like? And we spoke with a political philosopher, critical theorist, writer and professor Brad Evans, author of Atrocity Exhibition, Life in the Age of Total Violence. Brad touched on this idea that once presented with the facts by the science of a notion, we will all clearly come to the same obvious conclusion. Brad writes how he has always been struck by the political importance of the literary imagination. Not only does literature allow for a more intimate and compelling insight into the wonder and fragility of the human condition, it also provides critical commentary about those elements of human existence the so-called social sciences fail to capture. Yet, on This Is Hell, we only discuss nonfiction work, which could be limiting to my and your political imagination. So I want to apologize. I've done myself and you a disservice. Revolution is more than a few logical steps to suddenly create an easy, soft, quiet, velvet coup that gently allows the new political philosophy to rationally take hold. That's not how humans operate. We're not machines programmed with information and then making logical conclusions. We're messy, we're emotional, and that's what makes us powerful. So my deepest, most heartfelt apologies to all of you who are mistakenly led to believe that all I have to do is supply information and everything will be cool because it won't be. We need passion. We want real change. We need courage to dare do what we are told is impossible by politicians who have quantitative proof that idealism will fail. Because until we put the power, the passion of love back into the power of revolution, this will remain. This is hell. This week's question from Al is, Socialism? Barbarism? Or what? Socialism? Barbarism? Or what? That's all in reference to uh, the prize for this week's Question from Hell winner, which is Greg, a book we featured on last week's show, Greg Grandin's The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall to the Mind of America. At one point, that was a question that Greg asked, socialism, barbarism? Or what? And that's this week's question from hell. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the global left is giving cover for Trump's coup in Venezuela. Financial power has grown so much that governments have no choice but to repay all debts, no matter how unfair. Native Americans are continuing their campaign against the fossil fuel industry, and this time they're doing it at the site of Trump's wall. Youth Climate Strike is a new movement led by students who skipped school yesterday, went on strike as they demanded something be done about global warming. Chile's feminist revolution is now about a lot more than women's rights, and activists everywhere can learn about organizing from their truly unbelievable success against all odds. 
During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin punches the face of the god of lies. We'll also have Rotten History listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on, on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The left and progressives are creating cover for the coup to overthrow the elected government of Venezuela by the U.S. and their Western allies. Here to tell us how the left is supporting the coup, our return guest journalist and Political analyst Lucas Kerner posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Lucas. Great to be here, Chuck. Great to hear you on a phone and everything. Look at you. Aren't you fancy? What happened last weekend? Oh, just, uh, you know, 40, you know, two-day blackout. You know, just one of those things. In fact, you know, we have water now. We had electricity yesterday. I'll have you known, though. I am sacrificing my morning shower with running water for you, Chuck, to show how much I value you. <laughs> Please don't do that when I'm within uh, smelling distance. Lucas, uh, according to the New York Times last week, headline, as blackout per- uh, plunges a Venezuela in darkness, Maduro blames the U.S. That uh, story reads, the Minister of Electrical Power, Luis Moto Dominguez, said on state television that the blackout was caused by an attack on the Guri Dam, a large hydroelectric facility in eastern Venezuela. Information Minister Jorge Rodriguez, also on the state news network, said that right-wing criminals had committed sabotage to the dam system of generation and distribution. Your power went out and we were unable to talk last week. Is there any more evidence or is there any evidence at all that this was sabotage? And is this a new step, you think, in the level of intensity in the attempt to overthrow Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro? I think there's three things to consider. The first one is that, you know, it's widely reported and widely acknowledged that Venezuela's electrical grid suffers from long-term underinvestment, lack of maintenance, and, you know, it's also corruption that has, you know, made the system vulnerable to attack. The second fact is all of the above has been exacerbated deeply by the impact of U.S. economic sanctions, as the New York Times even reported, buried in the end of one of their articles, uh, reporting that the, the backup uh, thermal electric generators near the Guri that could have uh, prevented the system from totally crashing, powered by ga- uh, fuel, by gasoline, were not able to come online due to U.S. economic sanctions. Now, the third fact is, you know, as Forbes just reported in an article speculating about the possibility of this being a cyber attack, the United States has a very sophisticated cyber warfare command and you know, definitely has the capacity to do this, as we've seen in the uh, episode in Ukraine with the electrical system likewise coming down and, you know, likewise the Iranian virus uh, by the United States and the Israelis. That being said, neither the government nor the opposition has released, you know, any kind of, you know, full concrete substantive evidence to support their different uh, explanations of what happened. The opposition is that there's a bushfire, but of course that is itself very implausible and has been refuted by experts. Uh, the, the government is claiming that it's a cyber attack on the, the mainframe, the, the, the IT mainframe of the system. Um, but again, they haven't released. We're obviously, you know, this is a few days have gone by and, you know, we're, we're still waiting for um, concrete evidence about whether this was a cyber attack or not. But at the same time, clearly, it's, you know, it's an IT problem, it appears, not a, a fundamental infrastructure problem. And as such, that would indicate that you know, the, the hypothesis of a cyber attack does have some weight to it. 
CBS Evening News yesterday reported that many airlines are canceling flights to Venezuela because it's too dangerous. That's just that's all they said about it. How dangerous is it in Venezuela today? I mean, it's pretty incredible because of anybody who just wants to come to Caracas and walk down the streets. I mean, particularly during the this you know uh, blackout that we you know lived through you know last week, that things were very calm. You know, I was surprised because if you were to have a, a blackout for you know three four days in Chicago or Philadelphia or New York, I mean, you would see massive looting. You you know see massive outbreaks of violence likely in Caracas. Things were very calm. There were some isolated cases of looting, but people were very you know disciplined and organized, helping each other uh, out and in these difficult conditions and you know the, the reality of Caracas certainly is you know has a high homicide rate and you know has there's a lot of you know crime and such but you know it's, I wouldn't say you know I, I don't feel at all unsafe living here for years and you know definitely you just know how to know how to you know behave in a city as such so you had this article that was at venezuelanalysis.com called The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela, where you warned that the global north left critique of authoritarianism in Venezuela serves as ideological cover for the current coup and impending dirty war pushed by Washington. You write that in a recent piece for Jacobin magazine, Gabriel Hetland mapped out what he believes should be the left position vis-a-vis the ongoing U.S.-led coup effort in Venezuela. Hetland correctly observes that there is, quote, absolutely no justification for U.S. sanctions or military intervention in Venezuela, which must be opposed by leftists and progressives the world over. So before we get to where you disagree, you were just mentioning how the New York Times buried within their articles and within any of their coverage. I, 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 re- I very rarely hear anything about the impact of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. What do we what is the public miss in understanding and how aware do you think the U.S. public is that the majority of the problems that they're having with Venezuela's economy are being inflicted through economic sanctions led by the U.S. and the West? I think the first thing to understand is that, un- contrary to mainstream media reporting, sanctions did not begin on January 29th when the U.S. imposed a trade embargo against the country. Rather, sanctions began in really when Barack Obama declared Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security, declaring a national emergency for U.S. national security, and therefore creating the legal framework for the subsequent imposition of all uh, sanctions. This is clear that when a country, as, as the economist Francisco Rodriguez, who is arguably his opposition, pro-opposition, and is considered the foremost expert on Venezuela's economy, has argued that when you declare a country, a, you know, an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security, this, you know, obviously creates a de facto financial embargo and, and you know, economic embargo in which U.S. transnational corporations and other transnational corporations, international financial institutions, are less inclined to do business with the country, and a, a whole host of them left the country following this executive order by Obama that was subsequently renewed two times and then renewed by Trump. So what you see is following then in August 2017, Trump imposes a, a, a de jure financial embargo on the country, which prevents uh, U.S. creditors from engaging in new debt dealings with the Venezuelan state and with its oil company. And you know this conservative estimate find that the result of this being $6 billion in lost oil revenues. That's around 6% percent of Venezuela's GDP, you know, to consider that healthcare spending in the region averages around 7% of GDP. 
You know, so this was absolutely devastating. And, you know, Venezuela, it led to a precipitous decline of Venezuela's oil industry, the loss of some 700,000 barrels of production in the year following uh, the imposition of those sanctions, which has not been reported in the media at all. And then, you know, most recently, we have this, this oil embargo imposed on January 29th, which effectively prohibits U.S. Uh, corporations from selling oil to Pedevez, the Venezuela state oil company, but also from purchasing it. And Venezuela was selling 500,000 barrels a day of oil to the United States. It was its number one cash purchaser. So this, according to John Bolton, is going to cause Venezuela to lose $11 billion in oil uh, exports, oil revenues, just this year in 2019. And Francisco Rodriguez estimates that the cumulative impact on Venezuela's economy is going to be a contraction by 26%. I mean, that's a, a quarter, over a quarter of Venezuela's economy being destroyed. This is going to destroy what is left of Venezuela's economy. And as economist uh, Mark Weisbrot has estimated, this is already killing thousands, if not tens of thousands, and will kill many more. And this is you know, absolutely criminal and should be opposed by you know, any ethical person on the planet. So last week, 16 progressive members of the United States uh, Congress sent a letter to the Trump administration demanding an end to sanctions and uh, that are against Venezuela right now. What would be the impact of ending sanctions? How much would life change for the Venezuelan people if sanctions ended today? Well, I think it's interesting because Venezuela's opposition-controlled National Assembly just released a report a few days ago finding that hyperinflation had actually slowed in the month of February, coming down from like 167% in January to 50-something percent in, in February. So what, what's interesting is, you know, and this is partly has to do with the measures taken by the government that have succeeded in controlling the black market rate. And you see that consumer prices are beginning to stabilize somewhat, and actually many prices have come down simply because there weren't enough purchasers. So so you know, the reality is that you know Venezuela's Venezuela's economy is not recovering, you know, as a result of these sanctions. But you know, the, the prospect of economic recovery that was real, that Francisco Rodriguez, you know, the, the opposition aligned economist, was projecting growth for 2018 and you know 2019, an end to this depression which has afflicted the country. But the imposition of these sanctions, you know, absolutely jeopardized any kind of economic recovery. And that, and moreover, that was their design, you know, explicitly, you know, the design of these sanctions is to, you know, punish the Venezuelan people and inflict a massive amount of collective punishment so that the government collapses. And, you know, they do this through, a, you know, obviously the, 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 the difficult part is these sanctions have a very, you know, almost a visible impact, you know, given that it just destroys the economy overall. It's very hard to pick out what is the isolate individual factors, but, you know, they make it harder for the government to, first of all, have hard currency uh, revenues to import vital food and medicine, but it also makes it difficult to pay for those imports even when they have a hard currency because they ended up getting, because of U.S. directives, you know, aimed at freezing uh, Venezuelan payments, you know, out of concern for alleged money laundering without for drug trafficking without any evidence. This makes this, you know, for example, the case of Euroclear, which is a, a European financial institution, you know, the Venezuelan government has announced that some, you know, over a billion dollars of funds were frozen in these accounts and they were used for imports. So this is, this is, you know, have very dramatic and callous impact on Venezuela's population and will only continue to do so. So I, I want to talk to you about this humanitarian aid because it, it it doesn't really make sense to me that here's the United States. We have sanctions and or in other countries in the West. We have sanctions against Venezuela. And now we're going to send in humanitarian aid, which seems to contradict the sanctions that they're imposing on the country. So how were how was this 
a show of humanitarian aid being stopped from going into Venezuela. How did Venezuelans react to the humanitarian aid being stopped? Did they see it as theater? Did they see this as real aid being stopped? How did Venezuelans react to the humanitarian aid being stopped from entering Venezuela? Yeah, before I get into the Venezuela question, I think that the, the, there's there's a few key facts that were totally omitted from the media coverage. The first fact was that you know this aid, which the United States promised twenty million dollars, you know, and I think there was maybe a hundred million dollars in total promise, you know, pales in comparison to the sanctions, which we're looking at thirty million dollars a day as a result of these new sanctions that are being denied to the Venezuelan government. That wasn't reported, but also more crucially, the fact that the United Nations, the International Red Cross. Oxfam and a whole host of other international and Venezuelan human rights and humanitarian organizations put out a statement, very unequivocal statement, uh, condemning this aid as an a effort to politicize aid as a means of toppling a government. And so there was, this was obviously completely ignored in the mainstream media. Oh, of course, Venezuelan society is incredibly divided, and you know the, the reality is, you know, Venezuelans do want their you know economic situation to be improved, and you know, the, particularly among opposition sectors, there's there's a great desperation in that sense, support for you know the United States to intervene in the country. But at the same time, you know, I think we have to understand that Venezuelans are very proud people, and there there is an anti-imperialist consciousness that is you know very you know diffused in the population. And that this, this, you know, this, the theater of this, you know, episode where you have these, you know, these trucks coming in, you know, completely, you know, uh, from Colombia, the historic enemy of Venezuela, you have all of these right wing leaders, you know, you know, Elliot Abrams gathering in Cucuta and, you know, completely, you know, in an attempt to just utterly abrogate Venezuela's sovereignty. I think it definitely provoked, you know, a strong revulsion in many sectors of the Venezuelan population, even even opposition sectors who, you know, oppose the government, yet they don't see, you know, the United States, you know, effort to bring in humanitarian aid or so-called humanitarian aid as either feasible or in good faith, and, you know, are skeptical with respect to that. Did not allowing humanitarian aid have any impact on Maduro's pop- popularity one way or the other? Again, I think we should not use the term humanitarian aid because the, the International Red Cross and the UN have you know, right. said this is not humanitarian aid. This is politicized. But I think that ultimately, the, you know, clearly this was a, you know, this is designed to, you know, in, in Mike Pompeo's words, you know, character Maduro as a sick tyrant, you know, it was clearly designed to set it up, you know, for, you know, that purpose. But at the same time, it's important to recognize that it failed. That their intent was, you know, obviously to make Maduro look further like, you know, look like a dictator and justify, therefore, further sanctions and, you know, possibly military intervention. But they, they thought that they were actually going to be able to bring in the humanitarian aid, that they were going to have the massive response on the Venezuelan side of the border, that, you know, in order to, you know, break through the ranks of the Venezuela's, you know, National Guard and, you know, bring the aid in. But that didn't happen. None of that happened. And in fact, it was a spectacular failure. And, you know, the subsequent reports about, you uh, uh, Mike Pence and, you know, Sebastian Piñera, you know, getting angry at Guaido, you know, on the, given that, he has he had promised that the military was going to fisher and you know six you know more seven weeks in there's no signs of the military fishing there's no signs of any kind of popular outpouring in support of Guaido to topple the government so there there definitely is in many senses February 23rd was a victory for the Maduro government and was able to defend its sovereignty and you know as we saw the recent New York Times reporting that you know this whole notion of burning the the, the trucks that was done by the opposition not by the government and so the whole notion of humanitarian aid is further collapsing 
you know, in revealing that this, a, a pretty weak foreign-backed opposition without any capacity on its own to topple the government and has to rely on these largely pathetic, uh, you know, media uh, stories that, are, you know, are clearly designed, you know, they're ultimately get revealed as lies in an effort to delegitimize the government. So I got an email this week uh, from someone who claims that we are in some way endorsing or supporting Nicolas Maduro, that we are very pro-Maduro, uh, and they didn't understand how we could be pro-Maduro when Maduro is starving his people and keeping medical care, keeping them from the health need, the uh, health care that they need. What would you say to someone who argues that uh, Maduro, who argues that they're against U.S. intervention, but Maduro is starving his people and keeping them from their health care that they need? I think that as we as we just discussed, the, the key factor right now in preventing Venezuela's economic recovery is U.S. sanctions, and you know that is what is you know increasing hunger and suffering and death in the country. So I mean that's the first factor. Certainly, yes, the government has a lot of responsibility for the present economic crisis that we can get into, particularly with its you know poor management and your know, failure to take action with regard to currency controls, et cetera. But you know to say that Maduro is starving his own people is obviously a gross mischaracterization, and it's much more complex. You know the reality is you don't have to like. Uh, President Maduro, you don't have to support him or his policies, but you need to recognize that he is no less democratically legitimate than Donald Trump or, you know, for that matter, Theresa May or any other, you know, host of Western leaders who, you know, likewise won elections. And, you know, in fact, Maduro, you know, actually won the popular vote, whereas Donald Trump did not. So, I mean, these are things that we need to recognize. We need to differentiate our, you know, whatever feelings we have, political understanding of the government. And I personally have, you know, as I wrote about, you know, quite frequently, very deep critiques of the way the uh, Maduro government has, you know, managed the country and, you know, the particular direction within the Bolivarian process that he has taken. But nonetheless, you know, from the left, from internationally, we need to defend the democratic legitimacy of this government against what is our own government's, you know, effort to topple it in, you know, an absolutely violent, unacceptable way and promote a dirty war that will, you know, seeking to exterminate the Chavista political movement, which is really what is at stake now. So, uh, so how does someone navigate that fine line between being critical of Maduro and also not giving cover for the coup to overthrow the Venezuelan government? I think that people need to take their cues from the grassroots chavismo, from the you know, rank-and-file activists you know, in the barrios, in the communes, in the countryside, who, you know, while chavistas, you know, and while being in many cases uh, persecuted by elements of the security apparatus and you know, facing blowback from bureaucratic elements within the state, at the same time, continue to you know critically support the government, recognizing that you know a Chavista government is the condition of possibility in many cases for them being able to move forward with their projects. I'll give you a concrete example. Angel Prado, whom uh, Gabriel Hedlund cites in his article, he's the leader of the El Maisal commune in Lara State, and this is one of the flagship communes. Communes are these networks of local assemblies, community assemblies called communal councils that come together and, you know, basically to exercise both political and economic democracy on a lo local level. It's autonomous from the state. You know, they produce 4,000 tons of corn every year. They have their own communal enterprises producing pork, producing cheese. They have a gas, communal gas company. They, he ran for mayor in 2017. He was, in fact, because he challenged the local 
Socialist Party bosses there, and he was effectively denied victory despite receiving the, the majority popular vote. Something was evidently undemocratic in a similar many ways to what the Democratic Party did with Bernie Sanders, et cetera. But, you know, in this case, despite all of that, Antel Prado came out right after the coup and effectively declared, you know, quite explicitly that I will lay down my life for this process and for President Maduro, despite all of my critiques and reservations with regard to the deviations of this process. So, I mean, this is what this is the position of the most radical left wing you know, vanguard of Venezuela's socialist process. And I think we need to take our cue from that. You ask are free and fair elections even feasible under the current conditions within Venezuela? What are the greatest obstacles to free and fair elections? What are the greatest obstacles to democracy in Venezuela? Well, first, as I mentioned before, Venezuela is a democracy. It's no less democratically legitimate than you know, the United States or any number of Western countries. And Nicolas Maduro was elected with 6.2 million votes on 20th of May, uh, 2018, in an internationally monitored election. Venezuela has one of the most transparent electoral systems in the world. You know, were there issues? Were there problems? Certainly, in, in different ways, you know, you can argue. Um, one, one would have liked to have seen a, a, a primary within the Socialist Party to see if Maduro, for the grassroots rank and file, to decide if or not Maduro should run again, et cetera. I mean, that's a question of internal democracy within the Socialist Party. But the point is, we need to apply the same standards, you know, that we would apply to the United States or any, you know, Western country. So Venezuela is a democracy. Now, with regard to that, you know, we have to, we have to um, return to the issue of, if Venezuela is, um, you know, I, I think that we have to look, we have to go back to the 1980s when they started out, and there, there was a polarization within, within the U.S. establishment, on the one hand, the Democrats and the Republicans, that the Republican administration, well, they both agreed on one thing, the Sandinista revolutionaries who had won an election and had total democratic legitimacy had to be thrown, and the, the, the ASEAN regime had to be restored. The de- Democrats wanted to do so through elections and a trade embargo. The Republicans wanted to do it through a trade embargo plus the terrorist Contra war backing paramilitary death squads, you know, who, in, who uh, were using, in fact, a Red Cross insignia like the opposition today to, um, to transport weapons, et cetera. That with Venezuela, the situation currently is similar in the sense that, you know, yes, the Democrats oppose sanctions, but they still agree that the United States uh, needs to oust Nicolas Maduro. And, you know, the Republicans go in further and put the military option on the table. So, you know, the only position that we can have is to oppose uh, the United States' effort to topple this government, to oppose this threat of war, and to demand the immediate end of sanctions. I think that to, to posit these fantastical situations in which, you know, elections can be held not, you know, without sanctions or without U.S. threats or with a so-called democratic opposition, I mean, these are, these are unicorn situations. They don't exist in reality, and it's not our place to be pontificating about, you know, holding, quote-unquote, free and fair elections if the objective conditions render them impossible. We need to support the grassroots of Chavismo in its struggle you know, against bureaucratic elements within the process, while at the same time, our primary responsibility is to oppose our own government's you know, regime change policy, which is absolutely criminal, as evidenced by the, the you know, restoration, the, the resuscitation of, you know, these kinds of moribund figures like Elliot Abrams, who are, you know, war criminals and should be tried as such. 
You write how in the Jacobin article, Hetland is again right to note that had the opposition united behind opposition presidential candidate Henri Falcone, the ex-governor would have stood a good chance of beating Maduro. But he neglects to mention that the main opposition parties instead abandoned talks with the government and followed Washington's lead in actively sabotaging Falcone with the aim of delegitimizing the election and setting the stage for the present coup attempt. Why would Washington seemingly rather rather have delegitimized the electoral po- process than actually win an election? Why would they want to have a coup attempt rather than winning an election? This is absolutely key because, you know, as I traced in the article and, you know, the record stands, you know, there was clear possibility that Falcon, you know, could have won you know, the government. It's, it's important to recognize that the Nicolas Maduro government, from the moment that he came, he was elected on 14th of April 2013, in which the United States was the only country that refused to recognize, despite it being an indisputable result, and the opposition taking the streets and nine people being killed, that Maduro has wanted to reach some kind of you know negotiated settlement with Washington, in which you know he's willing to concede on a number of issues, particularly you know not pushing radicalizing the revolutionary process in return for the United States, you know agreeing to you know effectively suspend its war to overthrow, you know, economic and, you know, now increasingly militarized war to overthrow Chavismo. You know, that the United States has never been content with that. You know, just as we saw in Brazil with Dilma Rousseff, who likewise made important concessions in an attempt to win support of financial interests and, you know, other interests to ma- maintain the Workers' Party in power. Washington is never content in, in with, you know, these with, with these concessions, with these compromises, and always seeks to have its own people in power. In this case, Juan Guaido, who, you know, was educated at George Washington University under the tutelage of uh, former IMF director Luis Enrique Berispecia, you know, is their candidate. And, you know, he is someone who can be counted on to unflinchingly execute uh, U.S. directed policy in the region, which is, you know, neoliberal shock therapy, as he's outlined in his plan país to reprivatize the oil industry, reprivatize massive sectors of Venezuela's economy that, that had Henry Falcón won that election, then he would, of course, had to you know, swear himself in for the National Constituent Assembly. There would have been a, you know, a protracted process of negotiations in which he would have had to concede, you know, key elements in which, you know, for example, Chavismo would have retained control of the armed forces. You know, probably would have had a much greater uh, influence in crafting economic policy, or, or at least able to, you know, while ceding ground to Falcon and his economic advisor, uh, Francisco Rodriguez, it would have been able to maintain social spending, key social programs, that, you know, there would have been a situation of, you know, more or less negotiated give and take that Washington was unwilling to accept because it wanted the entire cake and is willing to do anything to get it. And, you know, that's the situation we're in right now. We are speaking to political analyst and journalist Lucas Kerner, who writes at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Check out his article, The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela. Find out more about Venezuela Analysis at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Uh, one of the things you mentioned that I wanted to touch on quickly is you write how in a previous article on VenezuelaAnalysis.com, we argue that the political science concept of authoritarianism is fundamentally colonial in nature, serving to juxtapose global North capitalist democracies with global South regimes that challenge the Washington consensus of free markets plus liberal representative democracy as the end of history. And this is uh, often a 
criticism that you read, and uh, Mr. Hetland does has the same criticism in his Jacobin article, that Maduro is acting in an authoritarian way. You are not saying authoritarianism or authoritarian traits don't exist. So how do we view authoritarianism differently? How do we understand it in a new way when we see authoritarianism as a colonial concept? Yeah, this is important because precisely the, this this notion of authoritarianism comes out of you know kind of bourgeois political science you know as a means of kind of creating this 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 binary between you know our own you know liberal you know democracies that you know uphold a whole series of liberal democratic rights you know on the one hand and then these global south regimes which you know are you know lacking in those same uh, democratic uh, you know in uh, democratically enshrined, you know, rights, which are, you know, ultimately end up being, you know, not social and economic rights, but, you know, generally, you know, political rights, quote unquote, you know, to freedom of press, you know, freedom to present yourself in elections, et cetera. And, you know, this, this goes back to a whole series of, you know, binaries, you know, whether, you know, that, uh, political science is imposed. And, you know, going back to Jorge Castaneda, the former Mexican foreign minister, when he divided the, the Latin American left between the good left, you know, which is supposedly the democratic left, Lula da Silva, et cetera, and then the bad left, which is the authoritarian left in Venezuela and, you know, uh, Nicaragua and Bolivia, Ecuador, et cetera, yeah, which is obviously a false dichotomy given all of these countries' governments working very close together in an attempt to curtail U.S. hegemony in the region. Now, you know, what is, you know, most... How how are we supposed to address the you know obviously pernicious elements of of, of rollback within the, the Bolivarian process you know which you know spaces of you know of, of democratization which were achieved under Chavez have been curtailed and you know w- you know which has largely been spearheaded by the United States by the opposition that the government has basically been forced on and and the movements that you know undergirded Chavez have been put on the defensive since the death of Chavez since the collapse of oil prices and you know the beginning of this very deep crisis. You know, and as a result, have been unable to push forward on you know the path to constructing a, you know as Chavez outlined a communal socialism. So it's important to recognize that you know if you talk to people in Venezuela, the and you actually ask them what are their issues, particularly in the Chavista Chavista left, the issue you know you're never going to hear the term authoritarianism. You're never going to hear people can. Enrique Capriles couldn't have run in the elections because you know for the vast majority of, of Chavistas. Henrique Cavalli should have been in jail after he participated in the first coup d'etat, let alone, you know, when he refused to recognize the 2013 elections and called for violence in the streets and nine people were killed and all the other attempts that, you know, so this is, for most Chavistas, the problem is not the government is too authoritarian. You know, it's a problem that it hasn't been authoritarian enough towards the capitalist class, towards the opposition, and, you know, basically uh, attempting to expropriate their interests, expropriate their property, and and creating spaces for, you know, communal self-organization. So absolutely, there are real problems of, you know, the the reversals in Chavez's crime policy and increasingly repressive nature of the Venezuelan security forces that mirror the the functioning of these apparatuses in, in Mexico and Brazil, et cetera. And Chavistas have raised very important critiques, and you know, we've published many of them. But at the same time, you know, this is the, the key point is no one uses the language of authoritarianism because no one wants to cede ground to you know, this, this right-wing position of delegitimizing the Maduro administration, which paved the way for you know, ousting the government by any means necessary and imposing a dictatorship. And remember that the only dictatorship that has existed in Venezuela over the last 20 years was the 47-hour dictatorship that the United States 
you know, Elliot Abrams particularly, helped install on April 11, 2002, which you know, saw a reign of terror in which between 50 and 60 people, uh, anti-coup protesters were killed, you know, in which the opposition, uh, the uh, aligned metropolitan police, you know, reportedly used snipers to uh, kill their own demonstrators in an effort to, you know, uh, provide the justification for this coup. So that's the only dictatorship, and this is not being recognized. On bipartisan support for overthrowing Nicaragua's Sandinistas in the 1980s, you write that at the time, even the so-called doves within the U.S. policy establishment, as Noam Chomsky meticulously, meticulously documents, enthusiastically backed the Reagan administration's criminal siege with liberal press icon Hendrik Hertzberg voicing support for a, quote, continuation of the embargo against Nicaragua if the Sandinistas won the election and the observer reports were less than favorable. In your opinion, why do even the so-called doves within the U.S. government so often in our history support the overthrow of democratically elected governments? Again, it's not just the it's not just a matter of passive complicity. It's a matter of you know the active role that, for example, the Obama administration played in overthrowing the Gaddafi government in Libya with absolutely catastrophic consequences: the restoration of slavery. Likewise, you know what they sought to do, which. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Samantha Powers wanted to do the same thing in Syria, that, you know, the Democrats have been completely on board with, you know, regime change and, you know, have actively promoted it as U.S. state policy. And, the, in, in, and particularly in Libya and Syria, like in Venezuela, the left or sections of the left in the United States have been very confused about this and have likewise lent themselves to providing cover for this, you know, of course, without making any apologies for the brutal natures of the regimes in, in Syria and Libya, although, you know, we should not at all draw any equivalency between, you know, the, the democratic government of Nicolás Maduro for all of its contradictions and all its problems and the dictatorships in Libya and Syria. Now, I think that the, the issue of the, the effort to, um, on the part of these governments to, the, the, with regard to the Democrats, the, it's not just the Nancy Pelosi, it's not just Chuck Schumer, it, it's not just uh, Joe Biden who came out and recognized Juan uh, Guaido. It's not just the resistance, which is you know marching lockstep behind Trump in this Venezuela regime change effort, but it's also Bernie Sanders who has you know has is almost has refused to condemn U.S. sanctions in Venezuela, at least to the credit of Elizabeth Warren, Ro Khanna, uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez. They have come out taking positions against U.S. sanctions, albeit with a whole list of, you know, of busts with regarding calling the, the government, you know, authoritarian and, you know, effectively, in many ways, in my opinion, playing into this narrative that justifies regime change. Uh, only Ilana Omar has taken a, a truly principled position and, you know, unequivocally opposing, I think you could maybe also add Tulsi Gabbard to this, in opposing the U.S. regime change project on all grounds, refusing to to concede any ground to this, you know, claim of dictatorship of authoritarianism that justifies the march to war in Venezuela. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, which surprisingly, he took a very principled stance during the 2016 primary, coming out and criticizing Hillary Clinton for having Henry Kissinger as her advisor. But where is his outspokenness now against when Elliot Abrams, you know, is, uh, again, brought back from the crypt? in order to play a role in Trump's foreign policy, you know, when he himself was, was a, a very uh, strident critic and you know, activist against the U.S.'s dirty war against Nicaragua. 
One last question for you, Lucas. Journalist and political analyst Lucas Kerner posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, The Global Left and the Danger of a Dirty War in Venezuela. This is Lucas's third appearance on This Is Hell, including joining us in studio back in August 2017. Lucas is a, not only a political, anal- he's a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com and is based in Venezuela. And you can follow Lucas on Twitter at LM underscore Kerner. That's K-O-E-R. N-E-R. One last question for you, Lucas, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, the reality the left must take deadly serious is that the U.S., along with its ultra-right political party allies in Venezuela, are hell-bent on waging a dirty war to exterminate Chavismo as a mass political force. Skeptics need look no further than the appointment of Elliot Abrams, who you've been Uh, discussing today, widely considered the godfather of the U.S.-backed death squad regimes in 1980s Central America as special envoy to Venezuela. Lucas, how likely is it that the next step of this is, again, death squads? I think that we, it's absolutely dangerous situation. I think that the plan A of the Trump administration is not military intervention in, in, in the sense that there is definitely resistance from the Pentagon and from elements of the State Department, knowing how absolutely messy and catastrophic such an intervention would be, not only, you know, for Venezuela, but also for neighboring Colombia and Brazil, you know, seeing that they were unable to to secure a majority within their own Lima group, which, recall, was formed after they failed to to get a, a majority within the Organization of American States to expel Venezuela to apply the Democratic Charter. So they formed this Lima group, which is largely comprised of their own right-wing puppet governments in the region. And, you know, only a few of their close allies, you know, like Colombia, were willing to back them on military intervention, whereas Brazil, you know, the neo-fascist Bolsonaro's Brazil has been, you know, less inclined to do so. But at the same time, we have to recognize that they're getting increasingly desperate. We're seven weeks into this coup. This was supposed to be wrapped up within 24 hours, as Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal has reported. They were expecting a mass popular uprising. They were expecting fissures within the none of which occurred. Now, what happens next? Clearly, they're stepping up all kinds of sanctions, but they're, they're, they're running out of things to sanction. I mean, they're running out of officials to sanction. They're down to sanctioning random governors within the country. Uh, they're, you know, it looks like they're going to apply secondary sanctions against uh, foreign companies doing business with PDVSA, looking to particularly go after the Indian companies where Venezuela is trying to divert its exports in an effort to uh, rake in, you know, loss. Uh, cash earnings, which it was uh, receiving from the United States. So, you know, if all of this continues to fail, you know, and you know, it, it, there's no indication that, you know, further sanctions will do anything more than kill many more Venezuelans. There's no indication that it actually will cause uh, Nicolas Maduro to uh, fall or cause a popular uprising or a fissure within the military. So, you know, if all of this fails, and given that they also calculated that with the uh, sanctions on uh, trading of Venezuelan state and PDVSA bonds, which suspended those trading, that that's going to that's gonna cause pain to bondholders as time goes on. And that, so basically, I think that their, their desperation will increase. And, and, you know, as that happens, the risk of U.S. military intervention increases because now it's no longer just about Venezuela or about U.S. bondholders or, or other, you know, petroleum interests, as John Bolton has explicitly stated. But it, it's about 2020. Trump has clearly staked 
Florida and you know the, the election on this you know framing of socialism versus capitalism and is, is clearly trying to use Venezuela as an issue as a wedge issue to win and uh, win over Democratic votes, particularly Latino votes in Florida. And you know it you know obviously failing to consummate this coup would have an impact on that. But more importantly, this is about the credibility of U.S. imperial blackmail. If the United States threatens to oust the government and you put lays down literally goes all in on trying to do so and, and creates a new coalition of the willing, you know, modeled on, two, on the 2003 coalition or to invade Iraq, you know, but even more arguably pathetic and, you know, evidently illegitimate, you know, with countries from Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro's Brazil to, uh, you know, Hungary, you know, authoritarian Hungary, et cetera, that, you know, this is, it, it, I think that the chance um, turning into a military conflagration increases because the United States can't threaten, you know, to out, it can't come, it, it, it's, it's like the, you know, the mafia godfather. If, 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 can, if he can't make good on his threat, you know, then he is no longer the godfather. And that's, that's the bottom line with the United States. If it, if it cannot effectively oust the government that it has targeted for destruction, for regime change, then it appears weak and that severely curtailed its capacity to project power within this hemisphere. Remember that they're clearly invoking the Monroe Doctrine, but also around the world. That's why we've had you on the show so often, Lucas. I really appreciate you being back here on This Is Hell. you got to read Lucas's work and all the work over at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. They do the best coverage that I've seen so far of any website when it comes to Venezuela. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Lucas, and you know I'm going to be bugging you to be back on in the future. Thanks so much, Chuck. I'm going to see if I can get my shower if the water's still here. (laughs) All right. Good luck to you, sir. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Why do nations pay off their debts to financial institutions that they incurred unfairly? Why do nations in debt prioritize giving money to the lenders they owe rather than to address the needs and demands of their own people, even when those people have voted to not repay those debts? We'll find out why when we speak with scholar, essayist, commentator, and political economist, as well of, as founder of Roar magazine, Jerome Roos, author of Why Not Default? The Political Economy of Sovereign Debt. Spoiler alert, it's because global finance now has more power than any government on the planet, so they can dictate their cruel world upon us. I told you it was a spoiler. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, Gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history in the year 1244, 775 years ago, some 500 adherents of the Cathar Church, a breakaway Christian sect, surrendered to military forces of the French king after a nine-month siege. During the siege, the Cathars had endured constant bombardment with rock catapults as they huddled in their fortress atop an enormous limestone hill in the Pyrenees Mountains in what is now southern France. Though the Cathars venerated the figure of Jesus and considered themselves Christians, they rejected baptism and the doctrine of the resurrection and believed in personal reincarnation. So no dunking in water, no rising from the dead, but reincarnation, which is kind of like rising from the dead, and yet still believing in Jebus. The Cathars taught that the universe was the site of an eternal struggle between two equal deities, a good God of the New Testament, and an evil God of the Old Testament. I'm starting to think Cathars are anti-Semitic, but that's just me. For such beliefs, the Cathars were viewed as evil heretics by the Roman Catholic Church, which maintained its own insistence on a single all-powerful God and did not accept the Cathars as being Christian at all. 
And I'm starting to wonder the same thing. How were the Cathars Christian? But now I'm agreeing with the Catholic Church, and that always makes me kind of nervous. By the time French soldiers laid siege to their stronghold, the Cathars had resisted the Catholic Inquisition for years, often in skirmishes that turned bloody. Oh yeah, the Inquisition. I almost forgot all about the Spanish Inquisition. After the Cathars surrendered to the French, some 300 renounced their Cathar beliefs and were allowed to leave the area. This left a little over a hundred uncompromising hardliners, who after a two-week interval during which they were allowed to fast and pray, and pray real fast, then voluntarily walked downhill to where a huge woodpile had been prepared. They climbed into the woodpile, a fire was lit, and they all burned to death. Still, I'm really not sure where Christianity stands on willingly climbing into a woodpile to your own burning death, but not to worry, the Cathars believed in reincarnation, so if their beliefs were true, everything worked out fine. In Rotten History, 1968, 51 years ago, some 100 soldiers of the U.S. Army's Charlie Company killed more than 500 unarmed civilians near the hamlet of My Lai uh-oh, in South Vietnam. Jesus, thanks, Ronaldo. This should be an easy event to crack wise about. The victims were mainly women, children, elderly men, and babies. And I'm really starting to dislike Ronaldo. Many of the women and teenage girls were gang-raped before they were killed. Some of the Americans would later testify that on the day before the massacre, their commanding officer, Captain Ernest Medina, had told them that the villagers were their enemies and that they were to destroy anything that was walking, crawling, or growing because the U.S. military only has the best and brightest who have made the ultimate sacrifice for all of us and our freedoms, and that's why we should always support the troops no matter what. The soldiers in one platoon, led by Lieutenant William Calley, forced a group of some 70 villagers, including mothers carrying their babies, to lie down in an irrigation ditch and then shot them all to death with their M16 assault rifles. They later testified that Callie also went around mowing down groups of children as they tried to run away. Of course, Callie is more the exception than the rule in the military, but the military has had a lot of exceptions considering how much support they still get. As the gruesome details of the massacre became known to U.S. military commanders, they managed to keep the incident quiet until investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch, a past guest on our show, revealed it to the world 20 months later. And you can hear our interviews with Cy at thisishell.com. More than two dozen soldiers were later court-martialed, but only Lieutenant Kelly was convicted. He was given a life sentence in Leavenworth, and conservatives across the country expressed outrage, as did many state governors, including George Wallace of Alabama, Jimmy Carter of, Wa of Georgia. And President Nixon quickly stepped in, ordering that Kelly be transferred to house arrest. That's right, George Wallace, Jimmy Carter, and Richard Nixon agreed that a mass murder of women and children shouldn't face justice. Kelly would eventually go free after only three and a half years. Kelly is still alive now, 75 years old. In 2009, Kelly gave an apology of a sort, kinda, not really. No, it wasn't an apology at all. Kelly told the Kiwanis Club, because of course the Kiwanis Club would want a mass murderer to speak to them. Kelly told them, there is not a day that goes by that I do not feel remorse for what happened that day in Milai. And I think there, Callie's referring to the murders of women and children that he committed. Callie continues, I feel remorse for the Vietnamese who were killed. You mean the people you killed. 
for their families, for the American soldiers involved and their families. I am very sorry. If you are asking why I did not stand up to them when I was given the, the orders, you mean why you slaughtered people? I will have to say that I was the second lieutenant getting orders from my commander, and I followed them. Foolishly, I guess. So it's the old I was just taking orders bit that the U.S. said didn't fly as an excuse for the Nazis at Nuremberg. But for George Wallace, Jimmy Carter, and Richard Nixon, it's good enough for an American war criminal. See, I told you. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is a question that was pondered by a guest on last week's show. Socialism, barbarism, or what? Socialism, barbarism, or what? That was a question posed by Greg Grandin, author of The End of Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, and that is what the winner of this week's question from hell, the best response to this week's question from hell, will win. They'll get Greg Grandin's book that we featured on last week's show. Again, the question from hell is socialism, barbarism, or what? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show and to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won coming up on this week's This Is Hell. Financial power has grown so much that governments have no choice but to repay all debts, no matter how unfair. Native Americans are continuing their campaign against the fossil fuel industry, and this time they're doing it at the site of Trump's wall. Youth Climate Strike is a new movement led by students who skipped school yesterday, went on strike as they demanded something be done about global warming. Chile's feminist revolution is now about a lot more than women's rights, and activists everywhere can learn about organizing from their truly unbelievable success against all odds. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin punches the face of the god of lies. We'll have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll tell you what we've been up to on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell and some others for supporting the show online by going to thisishell.com when they click on support and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of this is hell noam chomsky called this is hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly noam's gone insane sovereign debt is being repaid at a rate that it has never been repaid in the past so why is it being repaid in the way that it is now? Here to tell us. Scholar, essayist, commentator, and political economist Jerome Roos is author of Why Not Default? The Political Economy of Sovereign Debt. And we are speaking to him live from Amsterdam. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jerome. Hey, Chuck. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show. Jerome is an LSE fellow in international po political economy at the London School of Economics and the founder of Roar Magazine. We're going to be featuring a guest on our show later on this uh, on this morning's show, Bree Busk, and she's going to be talking to us about uh, Chilean feminism in an article that she wrote for Roar Magazine. You can find out more about Jerome at JeromeRoos.com. That's R-O-O-S. And you can follow Jerome on Twitter at Jerome Roos. Sovereign debt is the amount of money owed by a government through borrowing, but sovereignty is the supreme power or authority given a self-governing state or that power over another state. So, Jerome, that made me think. Is sovereign debt simply a nation's debt? Or is sovereign debt the debt that has authority, sovereignty, power over a nation, that the debt is the sovereign entity, not the state? How much power can debt have over a nation and its government is let me let's just ask, ask that question first how much power can debt have over a nation and its government 
Well, I think that's a great question, and I think it's one that's super salient at the moment, especially in Europe, uh, but also in the United States in relation to Puerto Rico, for instance. And what we've seen is that over the past 30 or 40 years, that power of debt to basically shape the fortunes of countries has considered has increased considerably. Um, so there's been a real shift, if you will, in the global political economy um, that has seen the power of creditors, the people who hold that debt, uh, increased in a vast amount. And one of the things that I try to do in the book is to sort of account for the historical reasons um, as to why that is so uh, and why we find that that power of debt to shape the futures of countries has increased so massively. So is debt authoritarian, even a dictatorship that imposes undemocratic demands on its nations and its citizens? Well, what we've seen in the past is that certainly it can come to dictate the ability of people to basically, you know, influence their own government, to uh, shape their own lives. If we take the example of Greece, is what we've seen is that there's been a thorough undermining of democratic responsiveness on the part of the Greek government as a result of its need to repay the debt to the European creditors that lent out the money um, in the lead up to the crisis. So essentially what we've seen in the Greek case is that the, the national sovereignty of the Greek state has really been hollowed out to a very important extent um, as a result of the way that the crisis has been managed. And the European creditor states, led by Germany and France, and the European institutions, including the European Central Bank and the European Commission, have, together with the International Monetary Fund, which is based in Washington, D.C., kind of come in uh, to the Greek uh, political scene in an attempt to try to get the government to repay its debt to European banks and to, um, to do so in a way that would not lead to any delays in those payments, right? So they've demanded a number of austerity measures. Uh, they've demanded far-reaching privatizations. They've demanded all kinds of cuts in salaries and pensions in order to free up the resources uh, for the Greek state to continue repaying its debt. And many people would argue, and I'm completely in agreement with that argument, um, that that has thoroughly undermined the responsiveness of the Greek government to its own people. So if you're asking if debt can be authoritarian, um, I think it would definitely be anti-democratic. Um, because it is basically about creditors coming to impose certain solutions to a crisis on debtor countries. And that is obviously something that, um, that thoroughly undermines the democratic uh, capacity of the governments in place. So what happens when governments don't react to voters, but they react to banks? What happens when they react to debt and not democracy, finance and not democracy? How... Do the priority, how does a government change when they're not thinking about what their voters want, but what their uh, lenders want? Well, I mean, what we see basically over the past 30 or 40 years is that governments tend to become increasingly technocratic in the way that they manage economic affairs. And that includes not just debt repayment, it includes a host of other things as well, like shaping uh, a good business environment, so to speak, that uh, will attract investments from abroad. Uh, but debt repayment is a crucial sort of lever in that process of empowering technocrats at finance ministries, at the central bank, um, and giving them more authority to basically act as what is considered to be uh, the behavior of a, a responsible debtor, right? And in the process, uh, we obviously see that that lack of democratic responsiveness, that, that growing power of technocrats within the government and the sort of sidelining or marginalization of those who seek to respond to more popular demands, is that that ultimately leads to a huge loss of faith among the populations in the debtor countries 
uh, in their own governments and in the capacity of political institutions more generally to respond to people's concerns. So again, taking the example of Greece, what happens in a situation like this is that you get mass protests. And you saw that already with the start of the crisis in 2010, and that continued right up until 2012, more or less, um, with the second bailout of Greece by the European creditor government. And eventually, the, 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 what happened is that in 2015, uh, the incumbent centrist, basically the two leading center-left and center-right parties, uh, were ousted from office. Uh, by a new anti-establishment coalition uh, that was known as Syriza, or the Coalition of the Radical Left, uh, which at the time, at least, was you know saying that they would sort of overthrow this technocratic way of government and that they would restore democracy and end the austerity regime of the European uh, creditor states. Obviously, that's not how things turned out, but that's kind of like the tendency towards anti-establishment politics is very much an element that we see uh, occurring in these debt crises. Another very famous example of that is Argentina in 2001. Uh, there was a, a huge crisis there for many years that uh, led to the emergence of massive social movements with very innovative practices, grassroots practices of solidarity economies, um, all kinds of direct democratic forms emerging with neighborhood assemblies, uh, forms of worker control over, um, over enterprises through the reclaiming of, of factories. Um, all of these movements were really a response to the lack of democratic responsiveness on the part of the government and the fact that the government had been completely bought, essentially, by foreign investors and foreign creditors. And obviously, in the Argentine case, that led to a very different outcome to what we saw in Greece, because in the Argentine case, those movements were so powerful that they managed to oust the sitting president and basically force the country into default, which to this date remains the largest sovereign default in world history. So has... Has finance won over democracy? Well, it's certainly won out uh, so far over the past 30 or 40 years in the sense that we see a growing tendency towards increasingly anti-democratic uh, ways of governing in many advanced democratic countries. Um, obviously, if there is some kind of you know, balance that we can see between democratic concerns and capitalist concerns, it's the capitalist concerns that are winning out in the last 30 or 40 years. Right. And I think that that's not necessarily um, a surprise, but it's nevertheless an important development that we must try to explain uh, in order to understand how we can begin to roll back some of that capitalist financial power. Um, because absolutely what we see in Puerto Rico today, what we see in Greece, um, what we've seen in Latin America over the past 20 or 30 years is a fundamental undermining of democratic processes in the name of the need to repay foreign debt. And that, by the way, it's a longer um, dynamic. It, it goes back in history. We can go back all the way to the age of imperialism, if you will, and see how, for instance, the United States sent Marines to several Caribbean nations and several Central American countries in order to force them to repay their debts during the crises of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We can look at how the European creditor states uh, literally invaded Egypt in order to force it to repay. Uh, and imposed all kinds of international financial commissions on Greece already going back to the 1820s. So this is a long-standing development. But what we've seen, what we've seen is that in the past 30 or 40 years, that development has really dramatically um, radicalized, and that the means through which democracy is undermined by finance are less and less dependent on military means, less and less dependent on the sending of gunboats abroad, and more and more achieved through the operations of international finance, of financial markets, of credit provision, and of course the intervention of the major uh, international financial organizations like the IMF and the World Bank.
So, uh, Jerome, I got to tell you, I have like 70 questions written down and I haven't gotten to one of them yet because I just keep thinking of follow ups to the questions that you're asking. So, so have we chosen, did we choose finance to be our more ruling power over democracy? Did we choose that? I don't think that any of us chose that. I think that that was very much something that happened in the 1970s in response to the crisis of capitalism at the time. So if we can go back in history a little bit, um, we see that basically after the Second World War, an international economic order emerged under the leadership of the United States and Great Britain that basically tried to reconcile, at least to some extent, some democratic responsiveness with the need of what they saw, the need of economic integration at the international level. Now, obviously, that was not a very democratic model because it was dependent on, um, you know, the exclusion of uh, many marginalized people. It was uh, dependent on uh, hierarchies uh, of, of, of race and gender. It was dependent on all kinds of imperial uh, relations. But the idea was that to some extent, um, the advanced capitalist countries could only prevent a major economic crisis like the Great Depression of the 1930s by imposing some limits on the ability of capital to flow across borders. So the regime that emerged uh, after the 1940s was called the Bretton Woods regime. And the idea was that capital would be confined within nation states to make sure that it would not unleash the kind of chaotic situations that we saw towards the 1920s and 1930s. Now, that model was relatively successful for about 20 or 30 years, but it began to break down in the 1970s. And what we really have to try to understand if we want to explain the rise of finance in the contemporary period is how policymakers responded to that crisis of the 1970s. And essentially what they did is that they realized that there had been a huge crisis of profitability. Um, profit rates were not as high as they had been in the immediate post-war decades. Um, there were uh, all kinds of social movements emerging. And remember, this is the 68 period that you were just referring to. Um, all kinds of um, uh, international conflicts are emerging. And in that context, it seemed, especially to U.S. policymakers, a good idea to try to unleash credit, to try to unleash finance in order to be able to get capitalism to grow again, in order to make sure that the U.S. government could also tap into that credit in order to basically beat its major international opponent, the Soviet Union, in the competitive struggles that were play, playing out in the international realm. Um, and at the same time, that credit provision, it was hoped, would boost the capacity of American firms and especially American banks to sort of hold the country out of the Taxation period of the 1970s, right? Now, that was to some extent successful in at least temporarily reinflating the fortunes of American, of US based capital and also of UK capital. But obviously, it introduced a whole host of contradictions into the system that made the global economy much more, um, much more subservient on the one hand to financial interests and on the other hand, also much more vulnerable to financial crises. And that's really when we start seeing a huge increase in the amount of international debt crises that we hadn't seen in the 1940s, the 1950s, and 1960s, and even the 1970s. So starting in 1982, basically a number of developing countries start going into serious debt trouble. And Mexico is the first one of them. And so what I try to do in the book is to try to kind of explain how these crises since then have been managed and how that reflects the growing power of finance in all of this. So going back to your question, was this our choice? I don't think it was our choice. It was very much a response on the part of ruling elites to the crisis of the 1970s and a way to buy time 
for them uh, in, in, in the event of a, of a very deep crisis of profitability. And obviously that introduced a whole host of new problems that then you know, led to all the crises that we're seeing today. I think what people might be thinking is, of course, you pay back your debts. That's just what you do. Of course, a nation would pay back their debts. They don't want to go bankrupt. They don't want to be outside of the global market. That's just what you do. Is paying back debt any more prioritized today than it was in the past? Absolutely. It, it definitely is. And that, I think, goes to the crux of the of the problem. So you're absolutely right to say that there is a widespread expectation that countries, individual, households, firms, that everyone essentially should repay their debts because that's just the thing to do, right? Now, there's actually a very interesting book that was written about that by the uh, anarchist uh, theorist David Graeber, who's also an anthropologist at the London School of Economics, uh, in which he very brilliantly shows some of the moral dilemmas at, at work in that, uh, in that assumption, right? And actually, that comes out very clearly in the German word or the Dutch word, for debt, which is schuld or schuld in Dutch. And that word means both debt, but it also means guilt. So that in a way, the debtor is always already presumed to be guilty for their predicament. It's their fault that they're in debt. And therefore, the assumption is that they should pay in the event of a crisis, and they should be the ones to suffer if they can't repay the debt. So this is a very deeply ingrained type of morality that has been with us for hundreds of years or even millennia. But interestingly, when it comes to sovereign debt, what we find is that actually the situation is very different. Actually, prior to World War II, it was very common for countries, when they entered into a major crisis, uh, to simply stop repaying their debt. So if we take the example of the Great Depression of the 1930s, what's interesting about it is that the vast majority of debtor countries in that crisis simply stopped paying their debts. They imposed what were called unilateral debt moratoriums. So the vast majority of Latin American countries and the vast majority of European countries simply stopped paying American bondholders uh, because they were in trouble and they couldn't repay their debt. Right? Now, what has happened is that with the resurrection of global finance in the wake of the crisis of the 1970s that I just mentioned, there's been a huge shift in terms of the prioritization in the management of these crises. And what we see is that since the 1980s, these unilateral debt moratoriums that were so common prior to World War II, have been all but ruled out. So they hardly ever happen again. And especially in the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008, there's been a very stunning absence of such sovereign debt defaults. Uh, in fact, the, um, as you mentioned in your introduction, the amount of sovereign debt that is in, in a state of default today is lower than it has been at any other stage in history in the wake of a major international crisis. So that's kind of a puzzle that we must try to answer. And I think that the power of finance is really the key to that puzzle. You mentioned the wave of sovereign defaults that caused international capital markets to collapse during the Great Depression. And you mentioned the fallout the, uh, from other non-payment and other defaults that have taken place mm -hmm. throughout history. Are sovereign debts paid back because the debtor nations fear something worse can happen, including a global economic crisis that could be even more debilitating to the borrower than the debt is? Well, absolutely. Um, there is something that they're very afraid of. I don't think it's necessarily an international crisis. I think it's more a collapse of their domestic economy. So one of the things that has happened since the 1970s is that all countries around the globe, both developed and developing countries, have become much more dependent on credit. 
And that's not just for their own governments. It's not just that governments become more dependent on credit, which they have, uh, but also domestic firms and domestic households are ever more integrated into the financial market. So we're basically in a situation where if credit circulation stops, a lot of people will have a lot of difficulty basically getting to their basic needs, right? Because you won't be able to draw on your credit card anymore to buy basic goods. A firm won't be able to get credit or investment anymore to continue its activities. And a government won't be able to get the credit that it needs to make whatever it is that it spends on, right? Welfare expenditure, military expenditure, uh, infrastructure investments, you name it. So this growing dependence on credit really renders governments increasingly subservient to financial markets, and it leads to a situation where there is a huge concern that if that dependence is upset somehow, if you scare away your creditors and if they stop lending to you, you'll find yourself in a much deeper crisis. And in fact, you may find yourself in a situation where your domestic economy virtually collapses. And that's kind of what we saw in the Argentine case that I mentioned before, is that when Argentina defaulted in 2001, for about three to six months, all credit circulation in the economy ground to a halt. And the consequence of that was that the financial system collapsed, that uh, many, many people lost their jobs. And in fact, one of the countries that had once been one of the richest in the world found itself in a situation where about half the population was now in poverty and where a significant share of the population could no longer even afford food. So it's in that context also that these social movements emerged and that these innovative practices of barter trade and, and, and solidarity economies arose. Uh, but I think that governments tend to be very afraid of that type of situation because they cannot control the social and economic fallout of such a profound collapse in domestic credit circulation. And I think that that's one of the main reasons that countries insist on repaying their debts, even when they cannot. Speaking to us live from Amsterdam, scholar, essayist, commentator, political economist, and founder of Rora Magazine, Jerome Roos, is author of Why Not Default? The Political Economy of Sovereign Debt. You can find out more about Jerome at JeromeRoos.com. That's R-O-O-S. And you can follow Jerome on Twitter at Jerome Roos. You write, if we were to draw the assumptions of neoclassical economics to their logical conclusion— Self-interested governments should try to pile up as many foreign obligations as possible before repudiating them in total, as rational lenders would in turn refuse to extend further credit to opportunistic borrowers. The result would be a collapse of global capital markets, meaning there should be no such thing as external debt to begin with. Yet this is clearly not what happens. What does it reveal to you about the nature of sovereign debt when it does not follow the logic of today's neoclassical economics, or for that matter, what does it reveal about neoclassical economics? Well, I think to, to tackle the second part of your question first, I think it reveals a lot, right? It, refe- it reveals essentially that neoclassical economics cannot account for one of the most fundamental dynamics in the world economy today, um, namely the huge increase in sovereign debt on the one hand, and on the other hand, the growing insistence of countries to actually repay those mounting debts, even in times of financial crisis. And The fact that neoclassical economics can't explain that, I think, is ultimately down to the fact that neoclassical economists make a number of assumptions that leave some of the most important dynamics in the management of these crises out of sight. And just to mention two of them, one that they completely ignore are what I call the distributive effects or redistributive effects of sovereign debt, which basically means that neoclassical economists treat a country as if it's somehow a single entity. And the government represents that single entity, and the government decides whether or not to repay the debt 
on the basis of a rational calculation of what are the costs and what are the benefits of payment or non-payment. And on the basis of that rational calculation, it will decide whether or not it repays its debt. Now, obviously, what we see in reality is that countries are not just unified actors. Countries are riven with internal divisions. There are people inside a country who stand to benefit from repayment, and there are people inside a country who stand to lose from repayment. And the reason for that is, is pretty obvious, is that because some people in a country are likely to be exposed to their government's debt. These tend to be the big banks, the, the big financial investors who may have bought some of their own government bonds or who depend on you know, the financial stability uh, that comes with debt repayment. But on the other hand, you have you know, working people, you have ordinary middle-class people, you have people uh, who depend on you know, all kinds of like, public benefits or students or you name it, um, who are much more at risk of the austerity measures that come with full debt repayment. And these people are much more likely to lose out when the debt is repaid in full. So over time, they may come to favor non-repayment as a beneficial outcome of the crisis. So you see that in these crises, there are all kinds of struggles and conflicts that emerge. And neoclassical economics is completely incapable of addressing those because it doesn't consider the politics of sovereign debt repayment. It only looks at the economics. So that, for me, is one of the major reasons why neoclassical economics can't really explain much about these crises. It is because it depoliticizes them in, to a very a large extent, and it, it ignores the class conflicts at the heart of them. And another thing, obviously, that comes with that is that it ignores these power relations that I mentioned before, because it is so used to explaining the world in terms of rational cost-benefit analysis, it doesn't really take into account the power differentials that exist between these different groups, but also between debtor countries and their international creditors. And it is when you start looking at these power dynamics that you can start beginning to explain why it is that countries actually repay, even when their debts are growing to a level where they find it more more difficult to do so. Well, that seems like a, a, a huge oversight. Why depoliticize economics? I mean, it, obviously, everything is political. Why would what's the what's the intent? Why would you try to depoliticize economics? I think that they, we can give two answers to that. One is the innocent one, and the other is the political one. The innocent one is that power tends to be a variable, if you want to speak in, in purely scientific language, that is very difficult to operationalize, which means that it's very difficult to show it at work in a particular case, especially if you're using quantitative methods like economists do. If you try to understand the world as basically an aggregation of a series of numbers, and you try to run complex regressions on that in order to understand important economic outcomes, then you're not going to include power in that because power is very difficult to demonstrate in any quantitative fashion, right? So to understand the way that power works, you need a kind of qualitative and historical approach. And that type of methodology has all but disappeared from the discipline of economics, which has become increasingly dependent on formal modeling and all kinds of mathematical um, uh, calculations in order to explain the way the economy works. So that is kind of like the innocent explanation. It's simply that their methods are not adequate for grasping power dynamics. But I think that there's a, a deeper process at work there, and that I think is ultimately ideological, is that depoliticizing sovereign debt and depoliticizing the way in which these crises are managed ultimately ser serves a certain function, which is to basically you know, shift the attention away from these power dynamics that are at work there and to try to account for the way that the economy works as essentially a set of bargains between different actors 
that are all constantly trying to maximize their utility, trying to maximize their benefits. Um, and there may be some kind of conflict going on there, but it's always within the market and there's never any power involved. So that kind of like depoliticizes at a broader level the whole capitalist system and makes us think of the capitalist system as a way that different actors try to maximize their, their benefits, essentially, and can actually, in the process of doing so, achieve better outcomes for all. And what I'm trying to show in this book is that that's actually not the case, right? Because you have these fundamental power dynamics at the heart of the system. You find that some actors are capable of basically forcing others to do something that they don't even want to do to begin with, and that may not even be good for the creditors themselves in the long run. So I think that there's a lot of problems there, but one of them is certainly that there's an ideological operation in neoclassical economics that needs to be exposed and dismantled. And I realize that this next question is a little bit more uh, vague and overreaching and uh, uh, too, maybe even too general. But um, how fair is sovereign debt? How usurious are interest rates on sovereign debt? How fair are repayment schedules and rates? How fair is sovereign debt? Well, I think that really depends. I think to a certain extent, uh, we need to take into account that sovereign debt can also have some positive functions. Right? Um, it's not all bad. I mean, to a certain extent, we can't even imagine an international state system in the absence of some kind of sovereign debt, because states depend on borrowing to engage in spending, simply because tax payments only come in at one point in the year and expenditures are continuous. So there needs to be some kind of way to try to smoothen the, the lag between income and expenses. And on the other hand, there's also a variety of government investments, for instance, in infrastructure or healthcare or research and development that require uh, upfront investments that are larger than the available uh, amount of money in the government's reserves. So that basically forces the government to borrow. And it is possible to imagine a situation in which a government can borrow under relatively cheap interest rates. And that may be due to the fact, as it was the case in the 1950s and 60s, that governments very strictly regulate the financial sector and impose certain limits on the interest rates that they're, uh, that they're paying. And they basically did that by keeping investors captive within national markets. And that way they pushed down interest rates. In the current context, we find that you know, things are very different uh, because capital can move across borders. Investors can simply decide where they want to push their money. And uh, they may find that a certain investment is too risky and therefore ask a very high interest rate, and another investment is not risky and therefore they ask a very low interest rate. So if an investor tries to buy up the debt of the U.S. government, uh, they will tend to be happy with a very low interest rate because the risk of that investment is considered very low. The U.S. government is seen to be so credible that it will always repay. Um, but if you go to a sub-Saharan African country, you may find a very different situation. An investor may not trust a government there as much as it trusts the United States government, and so it may charge a very high interest rate that, to some extent, leaves that country at a huge disadvantage, right? Because these high interest rates not only make it more difficult for them to borrow for all kinds of investment needed for local development, but they may also precipitate the kind of crises that we've seen so regularly since the 1980s, um, which are basically a result of the unaffordable interest rates uh, interest payments piling up over the course of the years. So to get back to your question, whether that's fair or not fair, I think that ultimately, you know, the market can um, lead to huge disparities. If you allow the market to basically determine social and economic outcomes, can lead to huge disparities that are not fair at all. 
and that can operate both at the international level between countries like the United States and Angola, for instance, but it can also operate at the domestic level, which is, uh, basically means that some people inside the United States or some people inside Angola will benefit much more from those loans than others. And I think that came out very, uh, very clearly in the debt crisis of the 1980s that struck the developing world when um, a leading UN official basically summarized that over the course of the 1980s, the rich got the loans, but the poor paid the debt. And that obviously is a very unfair situation. You write by noticeably intensifying distributional conflict over scarce public resources, sovereign debt crises tend to lay bare underlying power dynamics that during normal times are quietly at work beneath the surface. What dynamics are commonly revealed and and why does debt reveal these otherwise hidden power dynamics? Well, I mean, basically one of the things that I mentioned before is that there's been this huge growth in the power of finance over the last 30 or 40 years. But I think that that was not immediately obvious to many people prior to the global financial crisis of 2008. Um, Basically because finance was providing a lot of cheap credit to people and people were benefiting from that situation a lot. So, you know, if, if, if credit is abundant and you're able to borrow a lot of money to engage in all kinds of, um, you know, uh, consumerist activity, you're not going to complain about that situation until at some point that tap is closed and credit suddenly becomes much more expensive and it becomes much more difficult to repay those debts. And then suddenly what is revealed is a situation in which the crisis is managed to the advantage of some people and to the disadvantage of others. So if you look at the debt crisis that was at the heart of the U.S. mortgage crisis that precipitated the, uh, the financial crash of 2008, uh, you find that the people who ended up paying for the crisis were mostly marginalized households, especially African-American households, and especially single-women-headed African-American households that ended up losing out enormously because of some of the predatory lending that had happened prior to the start of the crisis. And that predatory lending was not very visible when the going was good. But, you know, there's a saying in investor circles on Wall Street that you only see who's swimming, uh, you only see who's naked when the tide goes out, right? So uh, there's this idea that, especially on the part of investors, some people um, are very vulnerable. uh, And the moment that the credit tide recedes, it only becomes possible to see who's vulnerable, but also who in the process is disadvantaged because of these power structures that I mentioned before. So I think that that's really what happens in these debt crises, that it becomes possible to see power dynamics that during the good times are largely obscured. And again, the Greek case is a very good example of that, because everyone thought that Greece was a wonderful investment destination prior to the crisis. And everyone thought that you know the European Union was a wonderful thing for Greece, because it was um, basically leading to a new era of, of development for the Greek economy. But what happened in the wake of the financial crisis was very different, of course is that Greece became hugely disadvantaged as a result of its you know, subordinate integration into the Eurozone. And the consequences that it suffered uh, only became visible in the course of that crisis. But in the process, it did show that there are fundamental inequalities at work within the European Union, within the global financial system, that leave some countries and some people at a considerable disadvantage. You mentioned even Greece's nominally left-wing government has insisted on repaying an essentially unpayable debt. How is Greece's debt unpayable? It's unpayable in the sense that the government has been forced to cut into all kinds of social provisions 
to be able to continue repaying its debt. Um, and that has basically led to a situation in which the government has decided to favor its, um, let's call it the legal contracts to its foreign investors towards the social contract with its own people. So essentially what has happened is that a social contract at home had to be broken in order to make it possible to repay the debts abroad. And that process, uh, to me, is a, is a sign of the fact that this debt is essentially unpayable. I mean, they can continue to repay because they will find new money here or there. But the cost of that is so immense for the domestic population that we've seen literally one of the worst humanitarian calamities in a developed European country outside of wartime. Um, we're not aware of any sort of relative deprivation on such a large scale outside of you know, major conflicts like the Balkan Wars or the transition to uh, capitalism in the, uh, former, um, the former communist states of Eastern Europe. I mean, what happened in Greece is really off the charts in terms of the amount of people who were thrown into poverty, in terms of the amount of people who lost their jobs, in terms of the dismantling of social services. Like, just to give one example, the healthcare budget was slashed in half. Many medicines are now inaccessible. People can't get basic, um, basic healthcare services. So this, to me, shows that essentially the debt was unsustainable, and the government had to go to extreme lengths to basically cut the welfare of its own people in order to make it possible to continue repaying the debts to the foreign creditors. Um, now, ultimately, that is not something that I'm uh, alone in in that assessment. Many people at the International Monetary Fund, for instance, were already saying it at the beginning of the crisis. And many very serious economists, uh, by no means left-wing ones, have been arguing from the very start of the crisis for the need to cancel some of that debt and to actually reduce the total amount that Greece owes to its foreign creditors to make it possible to repay the rest a less onerous term. So to what degree, then, did Greece have, did Syriza have any choice in accepting the IMF bailout? To, to what degree does any nation today have any choice in paying back their sovereign debt? So that, I think, is a very interesting question. And I, I do think that there is some space, uh, some leeway for countries to resist the imposition of these type of draconian outcomes, right? Um, I do think that that space has shrunk considerably, but the example of Argentina shows that under the right set of circumstances, with enough popular pressure from below, a government can still be forced to act in a more democratically responsive way by stopping its debt payments and prioritizing the interests of its own people over those of foreign creditors. I think that there was a small window of opportunity for that in Greece, uh, but it was not necessarily in 2015 when Syriza was in power. It might have been a bit earlier in 2011, 2012, at the height of the social mobilization. Because at that time, policymakers in Greece from the leading centrist parties were actually afraid that they were on the verge of a mass popular insurrection on a scale like that uh, that Argentina had seen in, in the previous decade. And that could potentially have really shaken the international creditors, because at that point, the Greek debt was still owed to many very large European banks. And by simply threatening to default, it seems to me that a Greek government could have extracted much better conditions, because in the event that Greece actually had defaulted, it would have been the banks of Germany, the banks of France that would have paid a significant sum um, in losses, right? I think that in 2015, the situation was already very different. At that point, the vast majority of Greek debt had already been socialized. 
basically it was now in the hands of the European creditor states and of the European Central Bank. And the basic opponents that the Greek government, the Syriza government encountered, were European officials. And the people who would have suffered from a Greek non-payment would have been European taxpayers. Now, that is already a very different situation, um, because I think Europe at that point was already capable of, of taking the hit. And although they didn't like, they wouldn't have liked the Greek default, they would have been able to withstand it much better. So the power dynamic was very different. Nevertheless, I do think that there was always a window of opportunity for Greece to defy its lenders, even in 2015. But it required a very serious plan B on how to deal with the economic fallout, including the possibility that Greece would be kicked out of the eurozone by the creditor government. And I think that um, dynamic uh, is, is a huge topic of conversation still in Greece today. Like, to what extent did Tsipras have a choice, the prime minister of Greece? To what extent did he have a choice? He himself claims that he had no choice, that a default would have led to total chaos. But his finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, actually argues that he developed a plan B um, that would have allowed the Greek government to default uh, by imposing all kinds of um, complex arrangements to deal with the fallout uh, of that default, and that that might have made it possible to extend the defiance of the lenders a little bit longer. Um, again, there's a huge debate around this in, in Greek leftist circles, uh, but I think it's interesting to point out that the finance minister at that time was willing to still defy the creditors a little bit longer, while the prime minister at that point had basically already decided that he was going to surrender. And uh, Jerome has mentioned a couple of people who have been on our show in the past. David Graeber has been on our show a few times. Giannis Varoufakis has been on our show a few times. You can find all of the interviews with David Graeber and Giannis Varoufakis at our website, thisishell.com. You write that given the rapidly rising public debt levels in some parts of the world, it is by no means inconceivable that we will witness further default waves in the future with commodity exporters like Venezuela and some of the so-called frontier markets in sub-Saharan Africa possibly being first in line. As events have continued to develop, what is the likelihood that you think that Venezuela will default on its debts? And, it, and will, that, so, will that solve their problems? Yeah, so I think that this is a, uh, is a very interesting question. It's basically pushing the analysis forward. I should highlight that I finished the book, I finished writing the book in early 2018. So that's quite some time ago. So it's been in press for a while. Uh, so situation, the situation has changed a little bit. And actually, the most vulnerable players right now uh, appear to be countries like, again, Argentina, uh, to a certain extent, Turkey. Um, so the emerging markets are really in the picture, or at least they have been since last summer, because of um, a number of uh, developments that have caused investors to doubt their ability to repay their debts. Um, Venezuela is a different case. Um, it's a different case because a large part of the debt now is owed not necessarily to U.S. investors, but more to China and Russia. And that's because of you know, the U.S. economic sanctions uh, that basically forced Venezuela to turn to different countries and different uh, lenders. Uh, so the, the Venezuelan crisis, to some extent, has been managed through a bilateral agreements between the Venezuelan and the Russian and the Chinese governments. And that has bought the government a little bit of time, but it has also led uh, to a situation where the Chinese, for instance, now control a significant amount of oil revenue coming out of Venezuela uh, in return for some of the loans that they previously made. Uh, so to some extent, there's also a power dynamic going on there. Even though Venezuela received help from China, it is also in some sense subordinate to it because it is a debtor to China. Um, 
there is a, a, a huge concern, of course, that uh, this situation uh, might spin further out of control. But I don't think that that would necessarily be a major concern for international investors because they already saw that coming. And to some extent, they're already maneuvering. You can see now uh, they're already maneuvering to try to benefit from the current situation uh, and um, what they hope will be some kind of regime change um, to occur there. So I think that the most interesting uh, places to look at right now are the emerging markets on the one hand, like Argentina and Turkey that I mentioned before, but also some of the sub-Saharan African countries that I mentioned in that particular passage, um, which are also uh, very vulnerable because they've been borrowing a lot uh, in the lead up to uh, recent years. And now they find it more difficult to repay those debts because basically commodity prices have fallen, interest rates have gone up because the U.S. Federal Reserve has ended its quantitative easing program and is raising interest rates uh, because the U.S. economy is doing relatively well. So all of that might leave developing countries and emerging markets increasingly vulnerable to some kind of shock. And there's a growing concern among some people that in the next years that might lead to a new uh, developing country debt crisis. And I think that that's something that we all need to pay attention to. We have been speaking to, live from Amsterdam, scholar, essayist, commentator, and Roar magazine founder and political economist, Jerome Roos, author of Why Not Default? The Political Economy of Sovereign Debt. You can find out more about Jerome at his website, jeromeroos.com, R-O-O-S. And you can follow Jerome on Twitter, at Jerome Roos. Jerome, this is... A very enlightening book, and I've really enjoyed our conversation today. But our final question, as we do for all of our guests, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write across the globe, parties of the left have begun to adopt the mantra of budgetary discipline and debt repayment that had long been the prerogative of the fiscally orthodox right in the process domestic party politics has effectively ceased to explain prevailing policy outcomes, rendering national elections increasingly meaningless. Has global finance made democracy obsolete? It has not made democracy obsolete, but it has fundamentally undermined the established patterns of democratic representation that we have today. So I think that one of the challenges that we uh, will see uh, emerging over the next years and over the next decades is the struggle that will emerge from below in order to some extent try to reclaim that democracy um, for ordinary people and to try to roll back that financial power and that business power more generally um, uh, by, on the one hand, reclaiming perhaps some of the existing institutions, but on the other hand, also innovating new innovative democratic forms and new forms of social organization from below. And I'm very hopeful, actually, that some of that may happen in the years to come. And we already see it emerging in a variety of interesting developments, whether it's the rise of sort of new uh, democratic socialist uh, leaders in the UK and the US, or something that I'm particularly hopeful about, the emergence of a very powerful municipalist movement in cities like Barcelona, uh, but also in, uh, in the US. Um, there's a, a new initiative called Symbiosis, which is trying to draw together uh, people from different strands um, of the sort of libertarian socialist movement. And I think that all of this is showing that there is a, a growing concern among people that democracy has been undermined and a growing need not only to reclaim the existing democratic institutions, but also to develop new ones that are truly radically democratic. 
and truly responsive to people's concerns, and it allow for a significant degree of popular participation. And so I think that that is something that we need to pay attention to, and that's something that we need to direct our energy towards. Jerome, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation and expect me to be annoying you in the near future to have you back on the show. I really, really <laughs> I like this book. Thank you very much, Jerome. And great work, by the way, at founding Aurora Magazine. You should be really proud of that. Thank you so much, Jack. I really appreciate it. Okay, take care. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Remember when Native Americans were protesting at Standing Rock last winter? Now the indigenous are protesting at the border, and they're not only protesting fossil fuels and climate change, They're also protesting Trump's wall. We'll learn how the wall threatens sacred burial sites and and threatens to cleave native lands when we talk in a few to editor and staff reporter at Truthout, Candace Burned, who posted the article, A Tribal Camp in South Texas is Vowing to Resist Trump's Wall. This will be Candace's third appearance on This Is Hell. It's time for listener feedback. Scott emailed us at chuck at thisishell.com, writing, Hi, Chuck. We'd love to hear you interview Jesse Jar- Jarno? Jarno. Jarno. Jesse Jarno about his latest book, Wasn't That a Time? The Weavers, the Blacklist, and the Battle for the Soul of America. There's some info about the book and Jarno at a link that I sent you, and you can find out more on his Twitter account, Borgwick. Or his website, jessejarno.com. Thanks, Scott. So this book is about that whole folk music scare of the 1950s and 60s and how America's surveillance state saw it as a threat when in reality it just sucked. But check out the author's, check this out in the author's bio. Jesse Jarno is the author of Heads, a biography of psychedelic America, and Big Day Coming, Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock, which both sound pretty awesome. But I'm going to pass on talking about folk music. That stuff gets you blacklisted. Joseph writes to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Hi, guys. I have just listened to the Molly Smith interview from January. Molly's the co-author with Juno Mack of Revolting Prostitutes, the Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. Joseph continues, as you point out, it doesn't make sense to talk about sex work without listening to sex workers. It also doesn't make sense to talk about sex work without acknowledging the existence of male sex workers. A smaller group from, than females, perhaps, but also deserving of a voice. And Joseph's right. And he's even gotten us in contact with uh, male sex workers to discuss their work on the show. So we really got to do that at some point. But whenever we see books that are coming out about sex work or articles that are written about sex work by sex workers... The only stuff I ever find is by women. But, Joseph, I'm going to follow up on this. And, yes, we should have a male sex worker perspective on our show. Patrick writes to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Hi, Chuck. Was wondering if you could address something about your show. Actually, Alex might want to address this. I've seen the show and the Facebook page. Pro. I've seen on the show and the Facebook page endorsing pro-Maduro sentiments. Is Maduro not a dictator who has looted his country? Reading what Venezuelans say makes it seem like people are mass protesting against Maduro because his rule has bankrupted their country and left the poor starving and without access to health care and other basic services. Not to mention the spat of extrajudicial murders from security services. So, wondering about your show's opinion on this. Seems complicated. Note, I'm not endorsing 
U.S. intervention. Thanks, Patrick. Well, first of all, Patrick, it sounds like you're very much endorsing U.S. intervention. What are you endorsing if not U.S. intervention? Are you endorsing uh, the people to rise up and have a overthrow of the government? I'm really, I'm really not too sure. But anyway, Patrick, thanks for writing. Certainly not certain which articles you're referring to, nor do I remember us posting anything that did not also have a criticism of Maduro. If you just listened to our conversation with Lucas Kerner and you thought that that was somehow supportive of Maduro, then you didn't listen to all of his criticisms of Maduro and Chavez. Uh, which, you know, according to Lucas, uh, you know, that is what is actually happening in, uh, uh, in Venezuela. It's an actual, if you do that, if you go out and you're saying that uh, he is corrupt, that he is somehow uh, not worthy of being elected, Patrick, that's an endorsement of intervention. So, Patrick, either tell me specifically what article says there had some sort of pro-Maduro slant, and I will respond. But in the meantime, please go to our website, thisishell.com, search on Venezuela, and listen to any of the interviews we have ever done on Venezuela. Also, Patrick, ask yourself, if U.S. sanctions on Venezuela and the West not giving Venezuela access to its own gold, if any of that may have contributed to bankrupting Venezuela, leaving the poor, starving, and without access to health care and other basic services, do you think U.S. policy toward Venezuela had any impact on all the problems Venezuela is facing today and has faced over the last couple of decades. Because that is not something being considered by the U.S. mainstream media anywhere, and it's something, Patrick, that you should be considering. Anything you wanted to add to that, Alex? Oh, yeah, I was actually just, uh, yeah, type in Venezuela on our site, and uh, I don't know, listen to those two Julia Buxton interviews we've done. We've uh, probably talked more and more about the structural problems of uh, Chavismo than probably most other shows. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't think, uh, sort of getting, uh, accusing this is hell of being Chavismo, uh, operatives is, uh, probably getting you anywhere. No. And the other thing, I, I, Greg Palace, the first time we, I think the very first time we discussed Chavez on our show and, uh, Greg was very, uh, he was, he was very hopeful for the for Chavismo and the Chavez, uh, presidency and what they're, how they were going to change the government and the socialist revolution that was going to happen there. But even during that interview, I said, what's wrong with Chavez? And he said, one of the problems is, uh, you know, his uh, cult of personality. So from the very first report we've ever done on this show, we've always asked people, what's wrong with Chavismo? Uh, Chavismoism? What's wrong with Chavez? What's wrong with Maduro? In every one of those conversations. So please don't tell me that we're pro-Maduro. It just drives me nuts. That's listener feedback. If you want to contact us and possibly have your email read on air, email us at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio. This week's question from hell is socialism, barbarism, or what? Socialism, barbarism, or what? All replies read on air. Following our next, not this guest, uh, in about an hour. Uh, maybe 55 minutes, something like that. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, Greg Grandin's The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, where Greg actually posed that question, socialism, barbarism, or what? Again, the question from hell, socialism, barbarism, or what? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Native Americans are continuing their campaign against the fossil fuel industry, and this time they're doing it at the site of Trump's wall. Youth Climate Strike is a new movement led by students who skipped school yesterday, went on strike as they demanded 
something be done about global warming. Chile's feminist revolution is now about a lot more than women's rights and activists everywhere can learn about organizing from their truly unbelievable success against all odds. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin punches the face of the god of lies. We'll also have what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for supporting the show online as well as sharing the show online. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell as Alex Jerry. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. Native Americans are protesting Trump's wall as they continue their activism that is challenging the continued threat to their sacred land. Here to tell us exactly why and where the indigenous are protesting the wall. Returning to This Is Hell, editor and staff reporter at Truthout, Candace Byrne, posted the article, A Tribal Camp in South Texas is Vowing to Resist Trump's Wall. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Candace. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me back. Candace's work has also appeared in several other publications, as well as in Truth Out's anthology on police violence. Who do you serve? Who do you protect? And that's why Candace was on our show for the very first time back in 2017, because we were discussing that book with her. Uh, you can follow Candace on Twitter at Candace Burned. That's B-E-R-N-D. You write the 1600 member Carrizo Camacrudo tribe of South Texas knows no borders. Called the Estacna in the native language, the tribe's people have been aboriginal to both sides of the Rio Grande River for centuries and have maintained sacred sites and burial grounds along its banks for just as long. But the tribe is not recognized by the state or federal government. Why is this tribe not recognized by the government? Uh, well, looking toward that recognition on, on both fronts, uh, going through the motions of filing that and, and sort of doing the paperwork um, on that. But both the, I think what's interesting when we talk about recognition is that both have recognized, um, there's about five tribes, two that are state recognized, three that are federally recognized. Um, but none of those tribes are aboriginal um, to the state. They are there because of forced extermination campaigns and, and forcible relocation. Um, so, you know, um, the Alabama Cushada coming from what we call Alabama now um, as a result of, of forced relocation. Um, that's a recognized tribe, but not Aboriginal. Um, so when we talk about the Eshtokna, the Carrizo Kamakrudo, uh, this tribe um, has been, like I said, I, I wrote in the piece, maintaining sacred sites. They were a nomadic culture. They had villages all along the Rio Grande. Um, and they're occupying this land again, um, you know, near the site of, of Trump's border wall. It's a segment that's slated to go in um, using funds that were back in March. Um, and I think it's really powerful that they are resisting the wall in this way by basically occupying lands that have always been you know, they've always been a part of, of these lands that they're now sort of occupying in, in opposition. 
Yeah, and it would seem that like nomadic tribes, are, that's very typical within Native American history. So it's kind of odd how that nomadic nature of this tribe would make it so they wouldn't be recognized. It's just kind of a weird thing for me to think about. But, but you write, tribal chairman Juan Mancias tells truth out that many of the tribe's ancestors made efforts to anglicize during the 1800s as a means of surviving the violent colonization that is still shaping South Texas. How is that violent colonization still shaping South Texas? Yeah, I mean, you can see it in, in the residents there just, just pleading to be a part of the national discussion about this emergency declaration and, and just pleading with, with how, with, with I think, just on the national stage about how their communities are, are really normal and, and really safe. And, and when you go to the border, it's, it's, it's stunning the way that that they are no different from anywhere else. Um, and I think that that racism that continues from early colonization, we see that in how the how Trump's rhetoric is bearing out. And in this you know national emergency declaration, um, it's this through line. You can take it from the original land grab um, all the way up to what's happening today. Um, just con- it's just a continuation of of the original land grab uh, of of native land. Yeah, that's uh, and uh, you write that. I want to read a little bit of an excerpt here from your uh, work. You write that many of the tribe are now laid to rest under anglicized names at the 154-year-old Eli Jackson Cemetery, just a few miles north of the river in the border town of San Juan, Texas. The Quarter Acre Cemetery inters 150 South Texans, including Nathaniel Jackson, the white son of a plantation owner, and likely his wife Matilda Hicks, an emancipated slave who to get slave who together founded a 5,500-acre ranch and community here with several other families. Just a short walk back up the road is the uh, Jackson Ranch Methodist Chapel and its separate cemetery. Once the fence goes up, U.S. uh, uh, Customs and Border Patrol officials plan to clear a 150-foot enforcement zone to the levees south, even if the zone doesn't necessitate raising the cemetery and exhuming bodies, which many have feared, it would almost certainly mean the public would be cut off from these registered historic landmarks. Your reporting on these encampments at Truthout, but are they getting any other media coverage? Because I have not seen any other coverage of this, and you would think that maybe there would be more media coverage of indigenous actions since the amount of coverage Standing Rock received back in the winter. So is there anybody else outside of Truthout, outside of you, who is reporting on this, and and what does that say about uh, you know uh, how the media feels about indigenous rights? The priority for the corporate media, but I do think we are about to see um, some steady pickup in coverage because the tribe is setting up a secondary or satellite camp at the national center, which has been at the center of of the corporate media's attention. Um, so I think they're going to have to start paying attention because they're going to see this tribe encamped at the National Butterfly Center in Mission, Texas. Um, and they're going to, I think the natural, uh, what will naturally follow is, hey, what is this tribe about? Um, but, you know, there have been tribal-focused publications reporting on Juan and the tribe's encampment um, at Eli Jackson. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there hasn't been much, much media attention uh, thus far. So what do you think it was about Standing Rock that got so much attention, but this action by Native Americans, at least up to this point, is not? 
several different factors. I mean, it's quite different than Standing Rock. Standing Rock, you know, those folks had a reservation. Um, quite a large tribe um, are recognized. This tribe is not. They have no reservation. Um, they sort of just uh, reached out to the Ramirez family, which is the family uh, that has the deed to the Jackson Ranch Chapel and Cemetery, um, and sort of asked, hey, can we set up camp here at Eli Jackson to protect uh, this they agreed to. And, you know, at this point, it, it still isn't very large. We're talking about a small encampment. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the two, uh, the two resistances are, are, are quite different, but very interconnected. Um, because like I report in the story, uh, Energy Transfer Partners, the very same company behind the desecration um, up at Standing Rock for the Dakota Access Pipeline, has destroyed other indigenous sites in the state of Texas, which indigenous people resisted previously in 2017. That was also in a border area um, in far west Texas in Marfa, or near Marfa, rather, um, with, you know, energy transfer partners, bulldozers going through an 18-acre site called the Trap Spring site um, that had indigenous and, and just historically significant artifacts all throughout that site. Um, so interconnected, but I would say very different at the same time. You write the cemeteries are not the first sacred sites to be threatened in recent years by colonial machinery in the state. As Truthout has previously reported, Native cultural sites have also been destroyed by the very same company responsible for desecrating indigenous graves at Standing Rock. And again, that's who you were just mentioning, Energy Transfer Partners. In your coverage and your investigation of ETP, of Energy Transfer Partners, how much does it seem that ETP's business model is exploiting natural resources from or through indigenous lands? Is that how ETP makes its money? Are they dependent upon essentially indigenous lands for their profits? I mean, at this point, yes. I mean, it's a repeated pattern. It's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a pattern. It's a practice. Um, yes, very much so. I mean, in, in West Texas, um, what we saw is that they, you know, went through, again, another sacred site um, to build uh, a couple of pipelines. The Trans-Pecos Pipeline is the main one, but it has a sister pipeline called Comanche Trail. So it's just galling to me that they would name their pipeline Comanche um, for one thing. Um, but yeah, the pipelines, uh, it, it, that set is, is one of several pipelines that are ostensibly about delivering natural gas to Mexico. Um, and I think what is interesting is, is that on the side, you also see indigenous people resisting these projects. So cross-border, we have indigenous people standing up and resisting uh, fracked gas, these gas pipelines, including energy transfer partners. That's really amazing. And that's the company set bulldozers. You write this. The company set bulldozers to several historic and cultural sites to build its, as you were saying, Trans-Pecos and Comanche pipelines, trail pipelines, uh, tribal groups, uh, later blockaded construction equipment to delay those projects in 2017. Native gra- grave sites were also exhumed when mining began at the Dos Republicas Coal Partnerships Eagle Pass Mine in 2015, despite outcry from tribes, including the Carrizo Camacrudo. That this suggests 
less than that there is widespread indigenous activism against resource exploitation, against fossil fuels, against climate change, not only in the U.S., but across the Americas. And, you know, because we know from uh, past guests on our show that this is also happening in Canada. This is happening in Central America. So to what extent is this, if there is an international indigenous movement to fight climate change, is that getting any more media attention in places like Canada or Central America? Are we, is it just the U.S. that is, U.S. media that's turning a blind eye to indigenous activism against climate change? Yeah, I would say more or less since Standing Rock, there hasn't been, you know, Standing Rock sort of made the corporate media pay attention. It, It could not be ignored by the nature of it. I think had it been smaller, had that had the conditions not lined up the way that they did in Standing Rock, and it had become such a massive thing, I think it would have been ignored the same way lots of these indigenous struggles right now that are ongoing that are smaller, um, that don't quite have that same level, are likewise being ignored. Um, just like the Black Lives Matter movement, right? For you know, it's, we know that police violence, um, police perpetrated shootings of folks have been going on, uh, of Black folks in particular, have been going on for a long time. Um, And I really think that it was the Black Lives Matter movement that forced the corporate media to pay attention to that issue. Standing Rock really forced the corporate media's attention onto indigenous. But, you know, now that that we're not seeing that sort of same level, it's back to the status quo, which is just generally to ignore these struggles. Let's talk about the sites that are being threatened just for a moment. What is the indigenous history that will that the wall will erase that these tribes are concerned about? Right. So they are occupying the Eli Jackson Cemetery, which has a fascinating history in and of itself. And like I wrote in the piece, you know, Juan Montilla, he says that he is distantly related to some of the folks that are laid to rest there. Um, and they they are under anglicized names, um, but that whole site uh, in and of itself is 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 wonderful when you think about its history because uh, that site was an outpost on the Underground Railroad. Um, the couple that started that uh, ranch it was a five it was a fifty five hundred acre ranch there. Um, like I said, Nathaniel Jackson, he was the white son of a plantation owner, and Matilda Hicks an emancipated slave, their original plan was to cross the border uh, to get out of the country, to run away from the Fugitive Slave Act um, that, you know, and just the racial terrorism of slavery that also outlawed their interracial marriage. But they stopped short for a couple of reasons. They didn't speak Spanish. um, And so that, they thought, would be sort of prohibitive to them. And they really fell in love with the land up at this site, and they decided to lay down roots there, figuring if they ever needed to cross the border, they really easily could. They were just right there. Um, and so they started this community, and they started shepherding other enslaved folks who were trying to run away across the border. So it's an outpost on the Underground Railroad, for one thing, historically. Um, and then the people who, some people um, fleeing, you know, not just slaves, but but all kinds of folks um, fleeing the conditions. You know, some of them decided to lay down roots there in that community instead of actually crossing over the same way they did. Um, so you do have a lot of indigenous folks um, with with different roots 
uh, formerly enslaved people who are laid to rest there. Um, so there's that for starts. And then, like I said, just uh, there's other sites that they're talking about. Now, I write in my piece about how it's not just a battle against the border wall, but also other fossil fuel infrastructures that get into the pipelines, which we discussed, but also um, these liquefied national, natural gas terminals, LNG, um, one of which, there are three of those slated to go into the port of Brownsville um, on the border, another border town there. And one of those LNG terminals uh, is, is one by Texas LNG is the company. And it is also slated to be bulldozing a federally recognized site um, called Garcia Pasture, which the tribe is also equally sort of uh, in opposition to because that site is federally recognized and is also containing indigenous artifacts. Um, graves, very significant cultural uh, artifacts are there and the federal government knows it. Um, so that is another sacred site that is slated to be destroyed. Um, as I report, there is a 900-year-old Montezuma cypress tree uh, that is threatened by the border wall. Uh, they're considering a sacred site. Um, there are several sites that have already been destroyed by what I call colonial machinery, but also several sites that are threatened um, by either Trump's wall or this uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, more or less. You quote Mariana Trevino Wright, executive director of the National Butterfly Center in Mission, uh, Texas, who worries that the administration's waiving of federal environmental laws could lead to further build out of fossil fuel infrastructure between the wall and the Rio, River, Rio Grande River. Uh, she fears the same environmental regulations that have been waived for the wall could also be waived for oil and gas infrastructure behind the wall in the name of national security. Trevino Wright says, quote, once they get all the LN the liquefied natural gas terminals built at the Gulf, and they're able to put the wall in from West Texas all the way to the Laguna Madre, no one will be able to get back there to really observe or object to the infrastructure that they put in. How can the wall be used to hide environmental destruction? Yeah, so that's this concern that she's been talking about that I think is, is really significant, but that hasn't sort of been highlighted when we talk about the wall and the dangers. And, and everybody is, is upset about the waiving of these laws. It's 28 different laws being waived under the 2005 uh, to expedite this construction of this segment, of these segments of walls that are going in now. Um, you know, and just, just quickly to note that one of those laws that is being waived is the uh, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which would, if this tribe was federally recognized, which maybe could give them some protection. Um, but, you know, so regardless of whether or not they're recognized, that law is waived anyway. Um, and there are, you know, among those 28 laws are a slew of mostly environmental uh, protections. This wall should be going through um, an, ad an adequate environmental impact statement. It is not. Um, and basically what Trevino, who, you know, likewise, she is the executive director of the National Butterfly Center. She's been in the media a lot. Um, basically, that this, that's her fear is that once that wall goes in, they could use the same sort of excuse to these environmental laws uh, if they want to put in additional fossil fuel infrastructure in what is going to be the newly created, quote, no man's land. 
um, between, you know, the wall and the river. Um, they're putting in, you know, this, this one of the pipelines that Trump has been touting is this new Burgos pipeline. That's going to go right underneath the wall. And he even made a little joke about it. He like waved his hand and he was like, they're going to have to dig a little bit deeper there or whatever to put in this pipeline. Um, but they are building out this fossil fuel infrastructure. They are putting in these LNG terminals. Um, they are sending this natural gas over uh, the border to Mexico and a lot of, and in a lot of cases, then shipping it overseas to Japan and China. Um, I should say that Trump actually toured with uh, representatives from Texas LNG, the company that is trying to bulldoze the, the federally recognized sacred site. Um, in China, representatives of that company went with Trump to China. Um, so the, the ultimate plan for this fracked gas is Japan and China. Um, so he's got these energy export plans. And Trevino is basically pointing out, you know, they could be using this as a national security uh, excuse to sort of build out more infrastructure without having to deal with these pesky, you know, environmental regulations. You write like the border wall itself, the terminal, this is the uh, liquefied national natural gas terminal in the port of Brownsville. Like the border wall itself, the terminal's uh, proposed sites would cause irreparable damage to an important wildlife corridor to the survival of the endangered ocelot. The terminal's emissions would also disproportionately impact the low income majority Latino communities in Laguna Madre area of Brownsville, Texas. Is the wall being placed in a classist way? That is, does it damage lands controlled by the more marginalized while avoid lands by the wealthiest and most powerful? Yes, of course. Of course it is. Just like any other federal project, just like, just like polluting uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, the wall is, is right in that same pattern. Um, and I do believe that if these laws weren't being waived, you would ha- you would have to have an environmental impact statement. But along with that, there's usually generally analysis uh, for environmental concerns, which is what is the impact of this federal project on low-income communities of color. Um, and you usually, with these fossil fuel infrastructure projects, you usually see a disproportionate impact on these communities. That is something that local residents there talk about. They talk about and, and when you see it, you have to go see this border fence for yourself. Um, the segments that are already up in Brownsville, for instance, that went up under Bush, you can see that it's arbitrary. The fences is very arbitrary because there are gaps that you can drive through all over the place. Um, so you can pass the border wall even where it exists. It's a matter of not getting caught by border patrol. That's all it's ever been. Um, but even under Bush, when these segments went up, it was about PR. It was about the ability to say, I put in this fencing here. Um, and that is the same thing it's about now. And residents will talk about uh, sections of Brownsville that are more um, affluent. Somehow were able to get the fence put to their south rather than to their north. Um, and they will, tell, they will tell you about how it's arbitrary to live along the border where fencing is they do not want that fence to their north and they do not end up having that fence to their north they get it to their south so yeah absolutely 
One last question for you, Candice. By the way, this is a fascinating piece, and there's some wonderful photography that is included. We have been speaking with editor and staff reporter at Truthout, Candice Byrne, who posted the article, A Tribal Camp in South Texas is Vowing to Resist Trump's Wall. You can find that article at truthout.com, and you can follow Candice on Twitter at Candice Byrne. Candace Burned, B-E-R-N-D. This is Candace's third appearance on This Is Hell, and we always enjoy when she is on the air with us. One final question for you, Candace. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You mentioned Juan Mencias. He is a member of the Carrizo Camacruo uh, tribe, tribe, and you quote him saying, if whites have an inherent right to come from Europe here, then there has to be a process for people of color to petition for asylum. You add this includes indigenous asylum seekers fleeing the fallout of the long legacy of U.S. state-sponsored genocidal campaigns, including the U.S.-backed Guatemalan military murders of tens of thousands of Maya in the 1980s. So, to you, Candace, what does the wall reveal about European whites and their relationship with the indigenous peoples of the Americas? Um, I think it's a continuation of, of, I don't think it reveals anything new. I think it's a continuation of the relationship that has always been, that initial land grab um, and, and, and that initial colonization. It's just, like I said, a, a through line through history, and uh, it's gone up and down in the way that it's exacerbated things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I wrote that conclusion in there because I wanted to highlight that among asylum-seeking people that are coming over uh, do include some indigenous folks, Quiche-speaking folks. Um, you know, we saw the death of young seven-year-old Jacqueline Call uh, back in December, uh, a Quiche speaker, um, for which there are no general language protections for these people. Um, and I just wanted to highlight all of those intersections when, when thinking about colonization, when thinking about this wall. Um, it's, a, it's a part of a long, long legacy of, you know, genocidal campaign, forced relocation, extermination campaigns. Candace, we always really appreciate you being on our show. You should check out Candace's work not only at Truthout, but you should follow her on Twitter at Candace Burned, B-E-R-N-D. She does some fantastic work over at Truthout. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Candace. Thanks so much, Chuck. I appreciate it. Take care. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is Hell the World's Youth, or Youths, I'm not too sure, are organizing, and they're organizing against climate change. We'll find out all about the youth climate strike and why so many students across the country skipped school yesterday, went on strike as students, when we talk to student activists Anya Sastry and Isabella Johnson, who are state leads of Youth Climate Strike Illinois, Follow Youth Climate Strike Illinois on Twitter at Climate Strike IL. Find out more about Youth Climate Strike in general at youthclimatestrikeus.org. Alex, what have you been up to on social media? Okay, I'll make this fast because I need a couple of minutes to uh, get in touch with Anya and Isabella. Um, I shared a <laughs> terribly, uh, terribly wonderful headline from The Guardian. U.S. official reveals Atlantic drilling plan while hailing Trump's ability to distract public. <laughs> uh, which also someone pointed out it's actually not distracting the public, it's distracting the press. Mm-hmm. Um, also, past guest Malika Jabali had a really great piece in The Intercept uh, called Hillary Clinton is still deeply confused about what happened in Wisconsin. Here's why that matters. We talked with her about Wisconsin voters 
in black Wisconsin voters in uh, this fall. Yeah. Uh, for, for current affairs, she, she wrote. So that's great. Uh, also a really wonderful monthly review interview with Utsa Patniak, I think is how you pronounce it on agrarian history and imperialism. And then also um, on Twitter, I shared my favorite pick from yesterday's youth climate strike, which was a teen holding up a sign that said, I was hoping for a cooler death. Uh, <laughs> good job, kid. You have an open invitation to come on this as hell. Also, we found out Richard Seymour has a new book coming out later oh. this year uh, called The Twittering Machine. And um, I hope you don't mind, Chuck. I know you try not to uh, impose your personal views on the show very much, uh, but I published an official TIH stance that we stand with any NBA player in conflict with fans of the media two mostly mostly worthless cohorts um also uh oh to let everyone know too um also i this is hell's putting a bunch of stuff up on youtube too so if you're someone who at work or wherever just likes to listen to interviews on youtube uh just type in this is hell radio and uh, we don't have the custom url yet but that'll get you uh, i don't know probably like 20 hours at this point of uh interviews and i'll be posting lots and lots of stuff up there later so yeah so you get that for free you get what we do every saturday morning for free and then during the week, we put out another additional podcast. And if you want to hear that podcast and show your support for This Is Hell, go to patreon.com slash thisishell. Oh, well, sorry. One more thing. Thank you, Gigi, who just called me to make sure that the second line uh, works on our show because I wasn't sure about that before I put uh, Anya and asked, uh, Isabella on. So thank you very much, Gigi, for calling and uh, helping me make sure that the phones work. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook. And after 194 respondents so far... We have the highest, perfect rating, five out of five stars. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air. You, too, can go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, like I said, I'll read yours on air. This week's question from hell is socialism, barbarism, or what? Socialism, barbarism, or what? All replies read on air following our next two guests. They'll be on air together. This week's winner gets a book we featured on last week's show, and the book that had the question socialism, barbarism, or what? And that is Greg Grandin's The End of the Myth. From the frontier to the border wall in the mind of America. Again, the question from Al is socialism, barbarism, or what? Leave your response now on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next guests and find out if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Youth Climate Strike is a new movement led by students who skipped school yesterday, went on strike as they demanded something be done about global warming. Chile's feminist revolution is now about a lot more than women's rights, and activists everywhere can learn about organizing from their truly unbelievable success against all odds. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin punches the face of the god of lies. We'll also have what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online and some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. What else did I want to tell you real quick? Oh, this is what I wanted to tell you. 
If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose your our content upon your neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Some of you are already suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not The Media radio network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com, or better yet, email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is this is hell. By the way, uh, tomorrow, wait, is there something else I want to tell you? I'll put that aside till later. Tomorrow is the closing reception for an art show at Second Story, Story Studios, the art gallery that we share the space with above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, where every week we have office hours every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m., where we have a listener meet and greet, a think and drink, if you will. And uh, so we do that every Wednesday. But tomorrow is the closing reception for the art show that is going on right now at Second Story Studios. Also tomorrow at Carrie's Lounge, starting at 3 p.m., they're having their St. Patrick's Day brouhaha. My understanding is that 100 pounds of corned beef was made. And every year it's gone. Every year, the people over at Carrie's Lounge, they eat up the entire 100 pounds. So if you want to see some art, if you want to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, if you want to enjoy some corned beef and cabbage, potatoes, maybe some soda bread, I don't know. I don't know what all is going to be over there. Join me tomorrow at Carrie's Lounge starting at about 3 p.m. for the St. Patrick's Day brouhaha as well as the closing of the art reception of the art show upstairs that uh, that, I, that you should be checking out. It's a really great art show, and it's upstairs in the art gallery that we share with uh, Second Story Studios. So join us tomorrow over at Carrie's Lounge starting at about 3 p.m., and if you don't make it for that... Then join us on Wednesdays for This Is Hell Office Hours, where you can get some subvertising stickers. We'll give you show uh, books that are show-related, and uh, just generally hang out, and you can ask me all those kind of weird questions that you might have for me. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell as Alex Jerry. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. Recent guest Astra Taylor got all emotional yesterday on social media about the movement that we're now going to discuss. And who can blame her? I got all emotional too. The youth climate strike is one of the more inspirational movements taking place today, here to tell us what it's all about and what a youth climate group can uniquely offer in the fight against climate change, student activists Anya Sastry and Isabella Johnson are state leads of Youth Climate Strike Illinois. You can follow Youth Climate Strike Illinois on Twitter at Climate Strike IL, and you can find out more about Youth Climate Strike in general at youthclimatestrikeus.org. Let me uh, say hello to each of you separately first. Uh, welcome to the show, Anya. Hi, thank you, Chuck, for having us. And welcome to the show, Isabella. Hello, thank you so much for having us. Wow, both lines work. This is pretty impressive right now. We're very <laughs> impressed by the technology here at the radio station. Uh, so let's start with you, Anya. First, let's find out what happened at your event 
yesterday. Chicago Youth Climate held an action at Grant Park yesterday morning. What was the message, Anya? What was the message that you wanted to get out at yesterday's rally? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, the event went really well. Um, We had a great march to Federal Plaza, and the rally at Federal Plaza itself was very powerful. Um, And during the rally, we had various speakers come up and share their experiences and their opinions. And I think the one main message that really came across was that um, the voices of us youth are are very powerful. And um, when we use those voices, when we use um, and when we uh, are in our roles as change makers, we can really um, take action and implement some real change. Isabella, let me follow up on that with you. We have seen an emergence of more youth activism over the last few years, including in the wake of the Parkland massacre. Uh, to you, Isabella, what do you think explains the recent surge in youth activism, and especially on the issue that you're uh, most concerned about, and that is climate change? What explains to you the recent surge in youth activism towards climate change? You know, I think the Puckland kids definitely have a big impact on the entire world um, because you are seeing a ton of youth activism happen um, after that, such as the Montreal Lives Movement, et cetera. But I really just think that kids today are just starting to care more. And if you look at our country and what is happening, there are obviously a lot of issues, um, such as like immigration, the climate change issue, um, gun violence, et cetera. So I think that kids are just finally wanting to take a stand on all of these because we want to make change. And sometimes then nothing will really happen unless we protest. Yeah, I think going off of Isabella's point, um, I think, Uh, A lot of youth are now, we're seeing a lot of issues in the world and in our country, and we're recognizing that a lot of adults in positions of power are not taking the action that is needed, and so we're taking it into our own hands. Well, let me ask you that, Anya. What explains to you, what do you think is the reason why the older generation or generations are not addressing climate change to the extent that you think they should? Well, I think um, it comes down to uh, one or two reasons. Um, the first one being that um, the, the plain and simple fact is that their gen- the older generations, they're not going to have to deal with the effects of climate change. Um, and so they're, the, the decisions that they're making right now, they're not going to have to deal with the negative consequences of those. Um, and I think the second reason is that um, they're, so, they're so blinded by the profits of today that they can't really understand um, the dangers of tomorrow. So, Isabella, do you blame previous generations for climate change? More specifically, do you blame your parents or grandparents? I've asked this to a lot of activists, a lot of climate change activists. I've asked them if they blame their parents or grandparents, and I've got a lot of different responses. So I'm really curious, do you blame previous generations? Do you blame your parents or grandparents for climate change? Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I necessarily blame them, especially because so many new studies are coming out and everything. So I think previous generations couldn't have possibly known as much as we know today about what we're doing to the environment and everything. But I do think that right now I do blame the people in power. I blame the politicians, um, representatives, senators, our president, because they're the ones who have the power to do it right now, and they're not doing anything about it. So I don't think it's – for me, I don't really want to – blame anyone for this. Um, I just want change to happen now. I think it's a lot of different people's faults, but it doesn't matter whose fault it is. We just need to change it. 
Well, Isabella, let me follow up on that with you. Uh, how much do you think blame can distract the, cl- the anti-climate change movement? I think it can distract it a lot because just like we're seeing in politics today, a lot of people will just um, hate on certain politicians and everything and just like say like, oh, let's impeach Trump, let's impeach Trump, and they'll just focus on that. But I think sometimes it's more important to focus on the specific issues and try to fix those instead of just always passing the blame around because you can pass the blame around forever and it'll go in a huge circle. But the thing is, it doesn't matter whose fault it is right now. We just need to change it. Anya, how much of the responsibility for governments not making climate change a priority, how much of that responsibility should be laid at the feet of the public, of us, for not doing enough to motivate governments to address climate change? How much is it our fault collectively because the majority of the public has not made it an issue, at least enough people to make it a, make a difference? How much is it our fault? I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, we elected uh, certain officials to take care of the issues for us. Um, we elected them to recognize certain issues. Um, and take care of them and deal with them and solve them. So I think at the end of the day, while, yes, us public and the general public needs to be involved um, and speak out about issues, we also elected these officials for a reason, so that they can recognize the major issues um, of today and then deal with them. The mission statement for youth climate change reads, we are striking because marginalized communities across our nation, especially communities of color, Disabled communities and low-income communities are already disproportionately impacted by climate change. Isabella, how are the marginalized disproportionately affected by climate change? No, I have a really specific example. Actually, for this, yesterday um, during the march, or what we were having a rally at Federal Plaza, we had someone come up to us and say, "At City Hall right now, there's." Um, a hearing going on. They're trying to decide um, they want to move this one harmful factory that releases a lot of pollution from a very wealthy white neighborhood into a low-income black and brown community. So I think that's just one example of how they put these factories and these things that release harmful chemicals, they will take advantage of the low-income communities, which usually, um, like in Chicago, they're taking advantage that They're not wealthy white people. So I think that people are definitely impacted by that more, especially if you look at some of the South Carolina, North Carolina. There are a lot of farms that release toxic chemicals there, too, and you'll see that they're in the low-income areas, too. Anya, in January, we spoke with Extinction Rebellion co-founder Claire Farrell live from the U.K., And uh, we talked about their campaign against further expansion of Heathrow Airport, which had found common ground with low-income neighbors living near the airport. I was asked to be the featured speaker at an upcoming Extinction Rebellion Chicago rally happening downtown tentatively on April 15th. uh, What makes your group unique from other climate change groups? Why is it important to you to have a group that represents the youth in our age of climate change and global warming? Yeah, I think um, what makes uh, the U.S. Youth Climate Strikes group so unique is that we are fully youth-powered, and it's truly a youth global movement. I mean, you have um, kids from around the globe in 98 countries 
working together towards a common goal. And the fact that um, we are in geographically, we are in different places. Um, we have different backgrounds. We don't speak the same language. But the fact that we can all come together for this one common cause and really um, band together and fight for change, um, I think that's something that's really powerful. Isabella, the mission statement also reads, we are striking because if the social order is disrupted by our refusal to attend school, then the system is forced to face the climate crisis and enact change. Does youth climate strike employ the same kinds of confrontational strategies of protest that has been seen of late from Black Lives Matter to Antifa to the Me Too movement and even Extinction Rebellion in the UK. How much is your strategy at Youth Climate Strike about the same kind of, or, you know, embrace the same kind of uh, confrontational technique? Um, you know, I think that our strategy, you know, if you look at Europe right now, they have been doing this for much longer than us. They have what's called Fridays for Future, and they, um, so kids will strike every single Friday and not go to school and march in front of their parliament buildings, etc. And I think that disrupting the social order will actually make change because it gets people's attention, you know, you know, and the whole point of all these movements, all these protests is really just to gather the public's attention, to get media attention, because the more attention we get, then when it comes November and there's more elections, I think that people will look more into the climate crisis and vote more on that. Anya, the action yesterday was during a school day. How did schools react? How did your school react to students striking yesterday? Um, I think it kind of varies for each school. Um, uh, in my experience, my school is very supportive of students' roles um, as a change maker. Um, and I know that the Chicago public schools are very supportive. Um, but I think Isabella had a very different experience. She wants to speak about that. Go ahead, Isabella. Yes. Yeah, so my school that I go to is in Naperville, actually Lyle, Illinois. Um, so it's a very conservative, more Republican area. And kids there, and like the um, administration too, it's more a more conservative um, school. So I didn't necessarily have the same experience especially when we did the walkout last year for gun violence and they kind of took it over and kind of, they weren't the most supportive that they could have been with it. Um, But I do know a lot of the public schools have been a lot more supportive, which is super cool. That is very cool. Uh, So uh, let's see. uh, Oh, let me just follow up with you, Isabella. Uh, The mission statement reads with our futures at stake, we call for radical legislative action to combat climate change, and we are striking for the Green New Deal. Isabella, what do you say to those who argue that the Green New Deal is too utopian or too expensive or too radical or too socialist or whatever the latest Republican or Democratic anti-Green mm-hmm. New Deal talking point is? What do you say to those who argue the Green New Deal is politically, financially, and practically impossible? Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely, um, I realize that it is ambitious and it may seem radical, but I think that that is what we need because when you see that we only have 12 years before it is too late, I think that we really do need radical change. And a lot of people say stuff about the cost of it and they say, oh, one minute. I hear you. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, someone else is trying to call. Um, 
But when people of main point that a lot of people say is that it costs too much money. But I think if we don't do this, the effects that climate change will have on us in the future, it's going to cost a lot more to repair our world. Anya, uh, you, uh, your mission statement also includes uh, declaring a national emergency around climate change. Anya, what does declaring climate change a national emergency actually do? How would that force us to address climate change more than we are now? Um, I think uh, echoing um, Greta Thunberg's statement um, to the UN, um, we need to recognize that this is a crisis and we need to treat it like a crisis. And so declaring a national emergency would allow um, the country to implement certain policies that really take immediate action. And I mean, looking at the Green New Deal, yes, people call it ambitious, radical, utopian. But if your children's futures were were in danger, if their lives were at risk, wouldn't you do anything and everything in your power to save them? Um, And so that's what I think the Green New Deal is. You have to ask for a lot to even get, get a little. Uh, or Isabella, uh, the mission statement also offers a lot list of demands, including one not only for the Green New Deal, saying that youth uh, climate strike demands an equitable transition for marginalized communities that will be most impacted by climate change, an equitable transition for fossil fuel reliant communities to a renewable economy. Those are two demands related to equity, Isabella. How effective do you think the quote-unquote, socialist attacks on the Green New Deal are. What is the impact, Isabella, of Green New Deal detractors labeling the Green New Deal as socialist? Um, I think that when everyone says it's socialist, I think that when people hear that, they get scared because they're like, oh my gosh, socialism, no. And I think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporting this Green Deal so much also scares people because... She is a more like um, she's more um, extreme left, I would say. And I think that sometimes whatever she does, people will just be like, oh, my gosh, that's too radical. It's just socialist. No, we can't do it. But I think you can't just label it as socialist. It's something that will help the world. It'll help the environment. And sometimes we just have to do what we have to do to protect our world. And yes, it's going to cost a lot. Yes, it's very ambitious. It seems like a lot. But we have 12 years before it's going to be too late. So I don't even think we really have a choice at this point. I've got one last question for each of you. Our final question for every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So let's start with you, Anya. We've been speaking with student activists Anya Sastry and Isabella Johnson, who are state leads of Youth Climate Strike Illinois. You can follow Youth Climate Strike Illinois on Twitter at Climate Strike IL, and you can find out more about Youth Climate Strike at youthclimatestrikeus.org. So, Anya, let's start with you. The mission statement from your organization concludes, these are not the sole solutions. These are just some solutions that we approve of. But to be effective, these solutions need to be implemented at a large scale by the U.S. government. Anya, does fighting climate change mean we must have big government? Yeah, I, I think that... Um <laughs> it's it's important to uh, have the government recognize that um, we need radical change um, because if we don't take the, that those steps towards radical change, 
um, we're not going to get anywhere with this problem. And um, we're going to get to the point where we cross the line and there's no return. Um, but right now we have the opportunity to um, make a change. We have the opportunity to solve this problem. Um, and we need the government to capitalize on that opportunity. Isabella, I am going to ask you a question from hell that is probably straight from Fox News. So I want to apologize before I even ask. <laughs> Isabella, is climate change activism a socialist plot to overthrow the United States of America? <laughs> um, it is not at all, no. Um, it is a way for us kids to take control of our future and to say, this is the world we are being passed, and we, older generations are handing us a dying world right now. And it's just a way, this is our future that we're fighting for. So I think we have a responsibility to fight for it. And I think really, kind of going back to Anya's question, I think not necessarily that the government has to be super big for this to happen. I think it's more of the government has a responsibility to make this happen. Anya, Isabella, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you being on the air with us. I want to stay in contact with both of you so we can watch the progress of Youth Climate Strike and here in Illinois, Youth Climate Strike Illinois. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Take care. Live from the good old U.S. of A. where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you do, we'll send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, this is hell.com and then click on support. Thanks this week goes to the tithing-like commitments of Kilter and John. Thanks to uh, Douglas who requested a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And finally, as always, thanks to Cherish for her support at thisishell.com when she clicked on support. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming weeks, days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration, your support will be needed more than ever. Chile's feminists have stood strong in the face of machismo and have found common ground with nearly every other movement in Chile leading to a popular uprising that activists elsewhere can emulate. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking with American anarchists living and working in Santiago, Chile. Brie Busk, who's written the Roar magazine articles, Chile's feminists inspire a new era of social struggle, and Chile's feminist movement is here to stay, which are two parts of an ongoing series. Brie is writing on Chilean feminism. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell which is socialism, barbarism, or what? A question pondered last week by Greg Grandin when we were talking to him about the prize for this week's question from hell, his new book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Again, the question from hell is socialism, barbarism, or what? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, to still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Again, Greg's book, The End of the Myth. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell because... Socialism or barbarism or what? (laughs) Nick E. says, socialism, ooh, barbary. French for socialism or barbarism, the name of that French journal. Alexandra Hopkins writes, bust. Ronaldo M <laughs> writes, "This is the first. This is not Who the first. Was that? It was Alexander Hopkins. Uh, okay. Oh, Alexander H. Sorry. H sorry. Uh, oh, I mean, it's on Facebook. Uh, Ronaldo M says, 
pasta fajoule. It's not the first <laughs> time he's answered pasta fajoule. I, I appreciate the uh, gimmick. I hope Joanne says something about Canada. Uh, Mark R. says, or socialism. There's no excluded middle. Adam A. says, death by bunga bunga. <laughs> Jake S. says, bong hits for Jesus. Socialism or barbarism or... Matt M. says, can I get a drink at the barbarism? There's a lot of these puns. Oh, wow. i got to think of better questions. Wow. <laughs> Matt. Wow. Shame on you, Matt. Uh, Pete G. says, America is a great society whose fondest hope is to be free from society. <laughs> Graham M.M. M. says, soberism, a truly hellish state that no one, not even conservatives, deserve to be in. <laughs> Fergus F. says, you can trade it all in for mystery box number three. Colin J. says, couldn't we have socialism and mandatory, mandatory haircuts? I don't see why it has to be an either or sort of thing. Oh boy, Colin. Oh, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Oh my God. Get ready for those responses. Dude, uh, <laughs> Dude why did uh, you make this jo question uh, from uh, jo uh, Joanne C says Canada? Alcoholism. <laughs> Duh. David W says Cromianism, which sends forth doom and death. <laughs> Jacob J says Radical Centrism, brought to you by Chris Hayes and Raytheon. <laughs> hashtag all in, hashtag Twilight of Extremism. <laughs> Socialism or barbarism or. Chris L. says, socialism, barbarism, or the mystery box. Who can deny the allure of the mystery box? <laughs> Pete V. says, Adrienne Barboism. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I know. I'm, so, I'm sorry, Come everyone. Come on, man. Uh, Jacob P. says, toothbrush pilferism is the only way forward, fools. <laughs> Jacob P. also said, Passadism and or bust, y'all, which is pretty good. Uh, Amy M. says, definitely socialism. I've never been a Streisand fan. Oh, barbar. Yeah, oh I got. I, I, I apologize. So, I'm sorry, Chuck. I'll Dude. I'll tender my resignation. Shoot. Shane M says anarcho-syndicalist onanism. There you go, Shane. <laughs> uh, Dennis H says or full Mad Max Thunderdome with a dash of the super rich watching from space or Mars. John T says barbarism ruled by elephants. Joseph D says soberism. John M says splitting hairs to, to hear him tell it. Marshall W. says, corporate crony family feudalism. Mika D. says, yes. Socialism or barbarism or, Alexandra C. says, zombie apocalypse, duh. Shintaris <laughs> D. says, or both sides are clearly too violent and too extreme. Can't we all just get alongism? Gorilla G. says, or we have to take the skinheads bowling. I'll award any Kemper Van Beethoven reference there. Sure. Andrew T. says, a combination of the two systems where us human squirrels compete for nuts, but unbeknownst to us, an invisible hand ensures that while some squirrels get enough nuts to survive, other squirrels get to hoard extra nuts, which leaves the remaining squirrels to get chopped up and thrown into Granny Clampett's varmint stew. Or in other words, compassionate conservatism. <laughs> if you could whiteboard that for me. <laughs> ZLH says, monopolism. I.e. every evening after everyone, everyone, has dinner and have our housing and healthcare needs met, we, as a planet, retire to our living rooms, get $200 in play money, and see who wins this time. <laughs> Astrid N. says, spaghetti dinner. Socialism <laughs> or barbarism? Richard M. says, socialism, barbarism, or, for you, the middle of the road folks, social barbarism. <laughs> Damn, that's pretty good, Richard. Uh, Walter B. says, or Beto O'Rourke, the empty vessel for hopes and dreams. <laughs> Who said that? As uh, Walter B. Uh, <laughs> like Luke S. says, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> and our own Jeffy D. says, barbarism, worship of the 12 neo... Uh, worship of the 12 neo-neanderthal tribes of the creator barbara streisand in her incarnation as giant robo empress ruling from the seat of galactic power las vegas in the beautiful vatican hotel and casino home of the bottomless seafood buffet and jiffy 10-minute organ exchange clinic socialism and barbarism a couple people on twitter uh, adam m says sleeping in late 
And Monetary Magic says, triangulation. First of all, I want to thank everybody for not one person doing a pun about Berberism, because that would have been like some sort of North African rug-making process. I don't know what the joke would be there, but just thank you for not also, because you did every other pun. Yeesh. Okay, my response to this question from hell, socialism, barbarism, or what? I'm going with a hybrid social barbarism where we all work together collectively like barbarians. Yes, there will be the excitement of barbarism with the titillation of meetings and paperwork. That makes this week's winner. Let's see. Here's the ones that I liked. Uh, Alexander H. saying uh, socialism or barbarism or bust. Graham saying uh, soberism. I like that. Joanne saying alcoholism. <laughs> kind of fighting. Each. I liked Astrid's answer of spaghetti. But we're going to go with Alexander H. for just putting in the word bust. You are the winner of this week's question from hell, and you get Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Just send us a message via Facebook with your mailing address, and we will send you your prize. Next week's prize for the question from hell winner will be a book we are featuring on next week's show, and that's Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. Thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge this week, 2251 West Devon, which happens every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everybody who dropped by this week, including Shelby. Sorry, I didn't get a chance to talk to you this time, Shelby. Lee, Joel, Wally, Dave, Rob, Dan, Johnny, John, another John, Jordan, Brian, Pete, and special thanks to Evan and Daphne. Evan gave us a great idea for where to hang our new on-air sign at the new studio. And Daphne is, like our next guest, a Chilean feminist. It's really incredible the people who I have met through this show at office hours and how often there are coincidences that happen just like that. So you should join us too at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from our studio, the bar downstairs from Second Story Studio and Art Gallery. Join us every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 2251 West Devon. The art show that's at Second Story Studios right now, the gallery we share the space with upstairs, they're having a closing reception tomorrow during Carrie's big St. Patrick's Day blowout, all beginning at 3 p.m. tomorrow. I'll be there, and it is going to be a brouhaha. So join me at 3 p.m. tomorrow over at Carrie's Lounge, or, and or, I should say, Wednesday during office hours, our think and drink, our meet and greet, at Carrie's Lounge again, 2251 West Devon. That happens Wednesday evenings from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Coming up on... Oh, no, wait. I have to read this. I forgot something. Get the That Was Hell email newsletter free. Every Monday, go to thisishell.com and sign up right now. 
This is Hell in your inbox every Monday morning. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter. Start every week listening to This Is Hell. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage in your new This Is Hell coffee mug, which you can see by clicking by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or you're browsing through a new book we gave you for dropping by This Is Hell office hours on Wednesday night. And suddenly you click on your inbox, and just like that, you've got links to this week's entire This Is Hell, all the separate interviews and correspondence reports, organized and ready for your listening and sharing pleasure. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter at thisishell.com and start your week by listening to and sharing This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Chile's Feminist Revolution is now about a lot more than women's rights, and activists everywhere can learn about organizing from their truly unbelievable success against all odds. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin punches the face of the god of lies. We'll also tell you what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast, a completely different This Is Hell show, at patreon.com slash thisishell. We also want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online. And some others for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. We'll also tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaff-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Chilean feminism is challenging a macho establishment that has forever dominated the country, as well as the more recent neoliberal order by going beyond more interse- mere intersexualism towards strategies that are multi-sectoral and transversal. Here to help us understand what that is so other activists may learn from the successes of Chilean feminism, American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile, Bree Busk has written the Roar magazine articles, Chile's feminists inspire a new era of social struggle, and Chile's feminist movement is here to stay, which are two parts of an ongoing series. Bree is writing on Chilean feminism at Roar magazine. Welcome to This Is Hell, Bree. Hey, nice to be here with you. Bree is a member of both Black Rose Anarchist Federation in the U.S. and Solidaridad in Chile. You can find out more about Black Rose Anarchist Federation at blackrosefed.org, and you can follow Black Rose on Twitter at brrn underscore fed. So, uh, in your first article, Chile's Feminists Inspire a New Era of Social Struggle, you write, it is May 2018, and as winter descends on Santiago, uh, Chile, a new wave of feminist activity is exploding into life. Anti-patriarchal graffiti covers the city's walls, and streets are littered with the evidence of recent marches. Tension is rising in the universities, and social media are flooded with posts ranging from cautious inquiries to joyous declarations. Is the downtown campus of PUC occupied states one? That's the Pontifica uh, Universidad uh, Catholic of uh, Chile. Was UCEN taken over? That's the Central University of Chile. Instituto Arcos on feminist strike. There were these kind of things that were being posted online. Back in 2011 and going until 2013, there were major student demonstrations during what started as the August 2011 Chilean winter protests, which led to the larger Chilean education conflict. Is the Chilean uh, feminist movement of last year and now continuing into 2019, 
How much is this an outcome of the student protests from earlier this decade? Is this the legacy of those protests? That is a wonderful question, because that is one of the topics that I really try to dig into in my article, is that the answer is both yes and no, because the students are, they were definitely the protagonists in 2018. The students have a long history of struggle, but uh, in 2018, the students weren't particularly active at the beginning of the year. It wasn't a time where students were in a constant cycle of marching in the streets or making demands. In fact, it was kind of a quiet moment. So the feminist movement, I would say, intersected with the student movement, and the students were the ones with the muscle memory to kind of pick it up and start running. What was the state of patriarchal power and the state of feminism before the current feminist movement. For people in our audience who are not familiar with Chilean culture, who haven't visited Chile, what was the state of feminism before the current feminist movement? Well, Chilean feminism goes all the way back. There's a really wonderful, inspirational history going back to like the previous turn of the century. But I would say this era started probably around 2013, that's when issues like uh, legalizing abortion uh, kind of rose to the top again here. Like uh, before 2017, they had one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws in all of Latin America with like no exceptions whatsoever, even in the case of rape or uh, fetal inviability, things like that. But um, also we have had a kind of a growing tension around the issue of femicide, which is the uh, targeting of women for violence and murder just because they're women or because they are not behaving the way that men expect women to. So often these femicides are carried out by boyfriends, husbands, exes, um, family members, or people in the community who don't like to see women doing well for themselves or saying no. So that um, topic has been in the news, in all the headlines for years. And part of the more recent feminist movement has been focused on articulating that as a particular social political issue and then also organizing against it. So you have all these kind of mixed, mixed issues, the abortion struggle, the struggle against gendered violence, and more recently, articulating uh, economic issues through a feminist lens. And these were all kind of cooking in the background, but nothing had quite spiked into a huge social movement in the streets until 2018. And I want to talk about that in a second, but uh, and I, I don't want to engage in tragedy porn but I want to just follow up on something that you asked, you just said. Uh, how common is femicide in Chile? Well, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but let me put it this way. Like, you basically hear something in the news every week. In fact, uh, there were two femicides that took place in Chile that were reported and documented just in, like, the day before the march. And I'm sure that the outrage around that really... Uh, you know, put the fire to people's feet to jump up and participate at that moment. 
One of the things I'm concerned about, Brie, is an oversimplification of uh, the feminist movement in Chile if it gets reported, if it gets reported here in the United States and the U.S. media. I'm, I'm just concerned that uh, it's going to be reported as a march or a movement for reproductive rights, and that's it, and it's going to stop at that point. What is missed when we only see the feminist movement in Chile as a fight for reproductive rights? Well, I would say you're missing almost all of it because that is an important pillar, but I don't think it's been the motivating factor, you know, even in the most recent years. It's there, but I think that really growing inequality is perhaps more of a, a motivator. Right? And when we talk about, like, gendered violence, of course, we can talk about femicide, domestic abuse, things like that, but we're also talking about basically the violence of capitalism. Like, Chile is, uh, to the outside world, especially to the Latin American kind of region where it is, is really well economically compared to others. There's a lot of uh, economic migrants who come to Chile for that reason. It's considered like a stable, good country where people can make it. But at the same time, much like the U.S., uh, there is an increasing gap between rich and poor. And women are really even further disadvantaged under that system. For example, with our pension system, um, you only get uh, to accumulate money towards your pension when you're working. So what about uh, the many, many, many Chilean women who are working in the home, you know, as housewives, caregivers, um, or working in the informal economy, which is huge here. Like, probably it's more the rule than the exception to be working without a stable contracted job. So women, like, they're finding feminism in their homes, in their jobs, uh, in their schools. When we're talking about, like, sexist educational policies, the lack of sex education, the lack of protocols to protect students from abuse in their educational uh, institutions. Like, yeah, feminism is everywhere. And I think that's the one thing that people need to see about this movement right now. In 2013, Chile did elect Michelle Bachelet as president. Did that in any way have an impact on the feminist movement? Because, you know, here in the States, Barack Obama is elected president in 2008, and all of a sudden people are saying that we're living in a post-racial society, which is definitely not the case. So I'm wondering if there was the same kind of exaggeration in Chile, that there was somehow living in a post-sexist Chile because Michelle Bachelet had become president. Did that? Did her election in any way have an impact on the feminist movement in Chile? Well, I wasn't here for the period where she was in power, but I can say that uh, you were not the first person who I've heard make a connection between Bachelet and Obama, because I think they both represented um, a lot of hope, because they were coming from like a kind of progressive type of messaging, and in a way, Bachelet did make some improvements, did make some concrete improvements that women benefited from. But much like Obama, by the time she was uh, finishing her second term, people were very uh, disillusioned with what she could accomplish. Uh, she was in power for a lot of the high points of the student movement. And I think maybe the students felt that she was going to be a better 
asset to their struggle. Um, and in them, there were some accomplishments achieved, but we don't have free education in Chile. So clearly having a, maybe a, a woman or even a socialist as president was not enough to achieve like the major goals of the movement. You mentioned uh, how the feminist movement in Chile has been disrupting and challenge or was disrupting and challenging the left as a whole. How did feminists disrupt and challenge the left? That uh, was something that I saw a lot of in the period right before 2018, like 2000, maybe the end of 2015 and in 2016. It was like feminism was on the table and all of the kind of traditional leftist groups, both like the official parties that run uh, candidates in elections and also you know, the smaller political groups or social movement organizations, they have to think, like, what are we going to do with this now that we can't avoid it? Um, Some political groups decided to avoid it, and a lot of them paid the consequences for that, with losing female membership, with having terrible splits. Um, Other groups just dissolved under the pressure, um, whereas others were able to integrate these new critiques and issues that were being presented because in a way like left establishment can be just as obstinate as right establishment parties, uh, people who have been in power for a long time, they don't like being told that they have to do things differently or think of things that they didn't consider before. Like if they're, we have a good portion of the left in Chile that are very comfortable And suddenly people who are used to having leadership, right, assuming that male leadership was the default, are being forced to um, accept changes. And I think some feminists maybe just want to see it all burn, whereas others are in the trenches trying to force change in their respective organizations or movements to make them feminists, essentially. You write the Chilean student movement has a long, rich history, most recently marked by periods of struggle, as we've been discussing, in 2006 and from 2011 to 2013, and can seem quite exotic to foreign audiences thanks to iconic photos of occupied schools and massive mobilizations. However, there is a danger in romanticizing these superficial images of struggle. The risk is that without historical grounding or contextual analysis, this current spectacle of youthful feminist rebellion will obscure the far more intriguing political developments taking place away from the cameras. What are those developments that are taking place away from the cameras? Um, Well, I think that one of the most interesting topics right now is in regards to the immigrant movement here, which I would say is just beginning to come into being. Because uh, Chile traditionally hasn't counted on a lot of uh, immigration. It's a very isolated country. You have the ocean to the west, the Andes to the east, the Atacama Desert to the north, and Patagonia to the south. But like with all countries, um, when Chile became more um, stable and more economically advanced than its neighbors, it started to attract more and more people. And right now, you have a huge number of Venezuelans entering the country. Uh, We also have a lot of immigrants from Haiti. 
And they represent a really interesting new challenge for Chile because, first of all, there isn't a large established black population in Chile, or at least there wasn't before. So in a way, Chileans are having to develop their racial consciousness at the same time that they're uh, kind of learning what it means to be a country that's attracting immigrants in massive numbers. And of course, the product has been a lot of xenophobia and developing anti-black racism as well. Some people are becoming more conservative. However, I think something that is really inspirational is that one of the first groups that said, we need to deal with racism, we need to be dealing with uh, this um, anti-immigrant sentiment was the feminist movement, even before it was reaching the peak that it has today. Um, for example, the uh, International Working Women's Day, March 8th, of the year before last, I remember attending a basically a propaganda-making event where everyone translated all of the slogans of the march into Haitian Creole and put them all around the city uh, with messages saying, like, uh, women immigrants, we welcome you to the struggle. Like, and not just in the messaging, but in terms of trying to do, like, concrete outreach and support. Because women migrants, they are in a position of, like, hyper-vulnerability. Hyper um, some don't know Spanish. Some don't have legal status. Uh, some will still be victims of femicide, uh, state violence. So we feel that... Uh, the feminist tendency intersecting with the immigrant movement is something that definitely deserves more attention. You write that in late 2017, the struggle against femicide and gendered violence converged with the immigrant, immigrant rights movement with the death of Joanne Florville, a young Haitian woman accused of abandoning her infant daughter. And uh, we do a weekly meet and greet with our listeners. And we actually had a feminist from Chile drop by this last week, week and she was saying how this was such a such a horrible event and such a turning point. Uh, Joanne was uh, subsequently arrested and held in detention until her death 30 days later, allegedly due to injuries occurred during her arrest. As a recent migrant who didn't speak Spanish, Joanne was uh, placed in a position of hyper-vulnerability, unable to explain her actions to the police or to defend herself against their accusations. Her death has since become emblematic of growing xenophobia, a problem which is further exacerbated by anti-black racism and misogyny. So anti-black racism, misogyny, anti-immigrant. Does any of this reflect a growing far right that is increasingly violent in Chile under neoliberalism, as is being seen in other neoliberalism democracies? Is, are, are you seeing a rise of the far right in Chile? Um, short answer is yes. Um, it's been manifesting in a lot of different ways. Like, first of all, you have to think that, like, fascism never really went away here. Like, the deal that the kind of institutional left made when uh, democracy returned to Chile was uh, that a lot of people were not going to get put in jail for their participation in the dictatorship, which means that you have people in Congress right now uh, who are pinochetistas, like, openly, without shame. There are still monuments to fascist ideologues up in the city in public places. So 
in a way, like the history of the far right or fascism here is also still in the, it's like an unbroken uh, part of the chain coming from the dictatorship. But we've also seen some uh, new developments here. Like, uh, for example, in the last uh, presidential elections, we had um, a candidate, uh, I would say a fascist candidate, uh, his name was Kast, and he was just, you know, I think people in the U.S. would recognize him as a familiar sort of type of public figure. Kind of gave me that uh, Steve Bannon feel where he won't say exactly what he's for, but he knows how to dog whistle with the best of them. And he kind of represents the maybe the polite or the institutional face of what is really a violent, growing right-wing movement. Um, we have also a lot of these smaller sort of grassroots fascist organizations that organize under like um, slogans like neither the right nor the left which always means the right, incidentally, or um, we're just patriots. We don't care about um, who you are. We just want traditional values, which for them are anti-abortion, anti-feminist, and anti-migrant. And under the uh, slogan of anti-migrant, they do mean also anti-black. And those groups, they have been increasing their media presence, getting more interviews. Um, I see their graffiti going up around the city and also their, uh, their posters and propaganda. I think that the worst example that we saw was last year during the annual March to Expand Abortion Rights. The one particular group... Uh, came and did try to do like basically a propaganda action to disrupt the march, uh, to try to drag some barricades into the street. Uh, they had a big banner that said something like basically female animals should be sterilized, uh, meaning, of course, feminist. And they uh, had kind of uh, buckets of blood and animal viscera that they dumped on the march out. And, of course, that was disruptive enough. It didn't stop things. But there was another group of hooded, masked individuals that attacked the march in uh, different sections simultaneously, stabbing some of the women who were participating in the march. And no one was caught for that crime. And, of course, the groups denied carrying out that attack, but basically they did it. You mentioned Jose Antonio Cast, and you write in your article, Jose Antonio Cast, whose 2017 presidential campaign promised a return to law and order and was welcomed by traditional conservatives. His hardline, abor- uh, hardline positions on immigration and social issues such as abortion have made him an inspirational figure to fascist groups organizing on the grassroots level. The ascent of nationalist and ethno-supremacist movements globally has given Chilean fascists a feeling of increased legitimacy, and the threat of organized violence against black migrants and feminists is moving from empty posturing to real violence on the street. But caste came in fourth place in the first round of 2017's presidential election, was not able to make it to the runoff, and he got less than 8% of the vote. 
So how representative representative is cast of Chile, or is his popularity growing since his 2017 electoral defeat? Well, I would say that not everyone would support him. I think Pineda is a much easier candidate to get behind, even for more extreme conservatives, because his main angle is like he is a businessman. Uh, he would rather kind of ignore the feminist movement into non-existence or to kind of maybe rebrand it, de-escalate, use kind of like softer tactics. But I think um, something that we've seen in the U.S. is that fascists don't necessarily expect to win, but they can use elections as a method to uh, get their message out there, to kind of create a... um, a higher visibility for their type of politics. And he is not the only politician with that type of angle. But, um, yeah, I would say that that movement is growing, but I think the feminist movement is growing faster and it's better organized. Whenever some of the right-wing extremist groups try to do their own actions, they're inevitably much smaller, much weaker, and maybe focused on trying to gain media attention more than like posing an actual like counter to the movements of the left right now. But things can change quickly. I think in the U.S. we you know had a candidate who was a joke for many years, and now he is our president. And I think that Chileans believe that you know the tide can turn quickly. So it is. So, it, is feminism in Chile then, is that leading to a decline in fascism? Because, you know, I was thinking about that when you were just answering a question. I was thinking maybe this is a, you know, can is feminism actually undermining fascism? Because there's 75, I saw a poll that said 75% of Chileans are supportive of the feminist movement. So is it really having a, a big em- impact as far as anti-fascism is concerned? Um, I don't know if it's undermining it. But I do think that um, fascists have to, they can't organize without thinking about the feminist movement. Like, um, I've thought about it before, like, where is the army to fight the rise of fascism? And I think the feminist movement is the army that we have, not just in Chile, but in Brazil, maybe even in the U.S. eventually. But I don't know. I don't think I'm ready to make, like, an assessment of that because... I think that people are still operating with a certain degree of caution. Like, for example, um, a lot of the feminist leaders, the people who you see on TV um, all the time are still going around with security details. There is still, like, fear that there could be, like, isolated attacks. But I haven't seen a fascist march in quite some time either. So I think that also, similar to the U.S., those types of groups, have their own internal power struggles and tear themselves apart. Um, There was um, a small action done the week before the March 8th um, strike where a little teeny uh, group, I think they were identified as sort of like right-wing libertarians, um, tried to do like a counter-propaganda activity. And it was so small that it was just, erased by the flood of media attention to the feminist activities that were happening at the same time. 
Prensa Latina reported this week that on the first year of his second term, President Sebastian Piñera has the lowest popularity rating of the period at 37 percent, according to a study by the consulting firm Kadem for the first week of March. The pollster blames this fall on the controversy over the installation of new meters of electricity and the foreseeable increase in electricity rates by 18 percent. However, the survey also deals with the mobilizations of International Women's Day last week with conclusive results since 67 percent of those polled considered there were sufficient reasons to call for a feminist strike and 73 percent think that Chile is a macho country. What impact, if any, have the feminist mobilizations had on the popularity of Chile's president? How do the protests depict Piñera? Uh, well, I saw some uh, pretty brutal banners during the march about uh, people sharing their opinions on the president. But um, I would say, like, Piñera was put in a tough position because, like I said before, I think he would much prefer to kind of ignore things or to just say, hey, can't we all be friends? Aren't we all feminists? And he was kind of uh, robbed of that opportunity because the feminist movement placed some really direct demands on the administration saying, these are the things that we want you to answer to. And by not engaging with that conversation, in a way, I feel like he looked a little lost, like he was the one who was behind the times. And um, his minister of, let's say it's like the, the Ministry of Gender, Women, and the Family, he had chosen a very, very right-wing um, woman from the Udi party to take that job. And this woman is uh, Isabel Plas. She's been having a, a lot of bad press because, of course, from her position, she's been called on to address the state of women in Chile. And she says, we don't need to strike. This isn't for us. We need conversation. Also, feminism isn't left-wing. What about other feminists? But the fact that we had such massive numbers mobilizing in the street kind of put the lie to the Feminism is also a right-wing activity. Clearly, like the uh, people who want social justice and end to violence, um, economic equality, um, social benefits, things like that. There, those are the desires, the demands that are uh, aligning under feminism and the narrative, the right-wing narrative of uh, economic advancement for economically comfortable women is not, it's not a, a demand to mobilize under. So I think that, in short, the administration is getting left behind and the, the people are coming up with their own answers. You mentioned the multi-sectoral and transversal tendencies within the feminist movement in Chile, which arguably hold the potential to unite Chile's diverse social movements into a force capable of presenting a real challenge to the triad of capitalism, patriarchy, and the state, as well as the emergence of La Coordinadora 8 de Marzo, the uh, coalition, uh, that's CM, CM8, uh, the, uh, or C8M, the coalition currently serving as the primary vehicle for this political approach. You're not saying only intersectional, but multi-sectoral and transversal tendencies within the movement. 
is this more than intersectional? What what do you mean by being a multi-sectoral and transversal movement? Because while the Chilean feminist movement is fascinating on its own, as you point out in your article, there's a lot we can learn from it. So what do you mean by being multi-sectoral and transversal? All right. Well, multi-sectoralism is the idea of mobilizing different sectors, or I would say like areas of struggle around common demands. Like example sectors could be like, for example, healthcare, the student movement, the labor movement, or uh, the territorial movement, which is like the movement of communities, uh, land, territory, housing. So, um, Multi-sectoralism is the idea that um, movements shouldn't just stay in their lane, that you need an analysis that incorporates all of these different areas, and then to find something to bind them together so you can have the students supporting the labor demands, the workers supporting the demands for um, dignified housing. Right? The idea is to get everyone on the same page working together through networks of mutual support. So no issue is left behind, but no issue stands in isolation. Like, uh, for example, um, there is an organization here, it's um, would translate as maybe the um, Healthcare for All movement, and they are a multi-sectoral organization in that they bring together medical professionals, they bring together patients, they bring to bit, uh, together medical students, and try to do healthcare work that touches on all these other areas. Uh, for example, when there was an indigenous um, hunger striker who was um, carrying out a hunger strike in order to access um, the right to do some of his religious ceremonies, the uh, healthcare organization mobilized around supporting him from a healthcare perspective that he deserves his uh, treatment, he deserves to be free to live his life and to do his uh, to practice his culture and religion. Also, they organized um, trainings, like uh, medical students would do free workshops, medical trainings, offer basic services in their neighborhoods or in the neighborhood where their university is located, like uniting students with healthcare, with neighborhood organizing. That's the idea, is to go and keep things mixed together and mutually reinforcing each other. The transversal element is finding the themes that can actually bring these sectors together. So, for example, Transversal feminism. Feminism is not a sector. Feminism is something that exists in all areas. We have feminism in the workplace, right? If your boss is harassing you, you need feminism there. You need feminism in the home, where maybe um, the wife or the mother is forced to take care of all of the domestic duties with no support from her partner. Uh, You need Feminism and healthcare, absolutely. So the idea is is that it is intersectional, uh, but I think it's more than intersectional. 
And the power of feminism right now is that it can be that powerful uniting tool uh, to make people understand how their struggles are related because we are much more powerful when we're fighting together and learning from each other than we are if we just stick to our one little pet cause or only work with what's in front of us instead of uh, working from a systemic analysis. You also mentioned the power of empathy rather than employing sympathy. Why do you see more power in empathy when it comes to Chilean feminism than you do within sympathy? Well, I think sympathy comes from an idea of charity, of feeling bad for someone who is experiencing something that you are not experiencing. And it's true. Each of us does have a unique existence. There's no such thing, for example, as a universal experience of being a woman. But we can still find some common themes, like the theme of violence is one that I think women all over the world can find empathy with to different degrees. Absolutely. But individual and structural violence is part of women's reality. Also, um, we can empathize around our relationship to power. Like our, this is, this feminist movement is not a movement of bosses and politicians. This is a movement of women who are, I would say, like, working class, indigenous, people who do not have access to institutional power to enact their demands. They have access to popular power. They have access to each other. And when we understand and can identify the threads that can build that empathy between us as individuals and as a movement, that gives us a starting place to start overcoming these systems that oppress us or exploit us. You mentioned sexual dissidence, a radical answer to the neoliberal politics of inclusion and diversity popularized by such groups as Sexual Dissidence University Collective. Uh, sexual dissidence d- denotes constant resistance to the prevailing sexual system, to its economic hege- hegemony and its post-colonial logic, and rejects the idea of subversive identities gay, lesbian, queer, trans, drag, etc., in favor of subversive analysis and action. The result is an inclusive, combative politics that cannot be easily co-opted or institutionalized, no matter how many individuals are peeled away by token reforms. How does sexual dissidence bring about a larger revolution than something only centered and on identity? And do you believe rejecting the idea of these subversive identities, gay, lesbian, queer, trans, drag, etc., would cause more participation by more people in a feminist movement or in activism today here in the States? Well, I think something like sexual dissidence does exist in the U.S. I would say it's like that uh, the queer liberation tendency the anti uh, assimilationist queer positioning, the idea that being a uh, rich gay real estate broker is a different experience materially than being like a poor trans uh, trans woman sex worker, and so I think that analysis is there in the U.S. and I think that here the strength is that it's not rooted in 
who you are, but your relationship to power. And that is a much more like potent area to organize from. Uh, the group that you mentioned, uh, Kut, they, um, they say that for them, sexual dissidence is important because any identity can be co-opted. Like being gay, for example, is not enough to ensure that you will kind of maintain this, um, I would say, counterposed perspective towards the systems of power. You can be assimilated. You could participate in those structures. So the idea is to have a way of acting that can't be assimilated. But that doesn't mean that people don't get to identify as gay or lesbian, uh, as trans, as non-binary. All of that exists here. And in a way, I would say that the integration of these communities into feminism here is more successful than it is in the U.S. because it's around an analysis of power. The same idea with um, feminism itself. Just being a woman doesn't make you a feminist. It's what you do. It's how you act. It's how you relate. And that doesn't mean that there aren't, for example, uh, TERFs here, trans-exclusive radical feminists. They exist. And there are also um, different types. I think we just lost her. Yeah, I'll call back. Damn it. Oh, I got a question from hell for and then that's it. I promise. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible business model. We'll get back to Bree in just a second. But after that, during the moment of truth in a couple of minutes, Jeff Dorchin punches the face of the god of lies. Speaking of our horrible business model where we stupidly put people before profits, on Patreon the last couple of weeks we explained how we are democratizing this is hell after having all these experts on telling us how great democracy is and that it shouldn't stop at the schoolroom door or the jail cell bars or the prison walls or even as we enter our own radio studio. So we're democratizing this is hell and we're doing that with the help of our subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Then this week, we went a step further into this democratizing process and to make certain we don't simply reproduce the same oppressive and unequal free market system that torments us today, we recognize that we've been de-schooling This Is Hell this entire time after scholar and writer Sidney K. Reddy explained what de-schooling is to us on last week's show. I'll tell you a little bit more about what's been going on on Patreon in just a moment. I've got... Oh... I guess we'll continue. Uh, we also played in honor of, uh, during our Patreon podcast, we also played in honor of New England Patriots owner and Razor magnate Robert Kraft, our July 19th, 2008 interview with Kitten Infinite of Sex Workers Outreach Project Chicago, a group that had called human trafficking activism the anti-prostitution industrial complex. Special thanks this week for joining us on Patreon goes to Jeff, Sarah, Holly, Norton, and Gavrilo. Thanks for joining us on Patreon this week. We now have 336 subscribers to our Patreon podcast, and I did some recalculating, and we need a lot more than that to keep this train wreck into oblivion going. You can help us get closer to that goal by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is how I'll tell you what's happening on next week's Patreon podcast in just a moment. Bree, one last question for you. And our final guest, our final question for each one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. 
and our audience might hate your response. American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile, Bree Busk, has written the Roar magazine articles. Chile's feminists inspire a new era of social struggle, and Chile's feminist movement is here to stay, which are two parts of an ongoing series. Bree is writing on Chilean feminism. You can find out more. Uh, Bree is a member of both Black Rose Anarchist Federation in the U.S. and Solidaridad in Chile. You can find out more about Black Rose at blackrosefed. Dot org. One last question for you, and our question from hell for you is, you write, united under the banners of non-sexist education and an end to patriarchal violence, Santiago-based high school and university students mobilized on May 16th of last year in the largest feminist mobilization in Chilean history, initiated by the Chilean Student Federation. This march caught the world's eye with its flashy contingents of young women marching topless, while wearing maroon balaclavas, a choice that was as much a demonstration of power as a celebration of bodily autonomy. Why topless? Why do you think that topless is a good strategy for a feminist mobilization? Well, I would say it's one strategy. Um, But, you know, I think uh, for the young women who are participating in the movement today, the idea of Showing your body because you want to, not as a spectacle for like the sexual consumption of others, so that you could just simply exist to be surrounded by your classmates, by your friends, and to feel the power of that, uh, those numbers and that protection. And that to say that your bodies have other purposes. Your bodies can be for, for the fight, you know, for the struggle, and not just for titillation or entertainment or for selling products. I think that uh, women who use that tactic, I think, want to rebrand their bodies in a way to take back how they're defined and put them in their own context. And in a way, I would say that more than attractive, the women who do that tactic are a little scary. And I think that's pretty cool. And I'm sure that was one of their goals. Yeah, and I'd really wish that that scare tactic. I think because I think it would work. I think that scare tactic would work against fascists here in the United States. I think that feminism can defeat fascism, and I think that that kind of confrontational feminism will just make fascists melt away. I, I, at least I hope so. At least I hope so. Bree, I really appreciate you being on the show. When is the next uh, article in the series coming out? Um, I'm hoping in about a month. I was waiting for the big day to happen on March 8th, and now I am full of deep reflections. I'm hoping this next article will focus on some of the political conflicts within the movement, talking about the idea of race, of the difference between the city and the country, some of the big tensions that I've seen emerge that I think are going to come to the fore in uh, this next period over 2019. Well, we're really looking forward to it. And when it comes out, we'll definitely share it. And maybe we'll have you back on the show because I've really enjoyed this conversation. This is really fantastic. We only barely skim the surface of these two articles. Everybody who's listening right now should go to Aurora Magazine's website and find Bree Busk's work. Or you can just go to our website, thisishell.com, where we have a direct link to her work there. And earlier on today's show, we had uh, the founder of Aurora Magazine on the show. And I totally didn't realize that until last (laughs) night. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you so much for being on the show, Bree. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. On next week's Patreon podcast, as I was saying earlier, at patreon.com slash thisishell, I don't know what I'll be talking about yet, but we will be sharing our latest installment in our Patreon-only series, 
and oral history of the Iraq War as it happened here on This Is Hell. This time we'll be sharing our July 19th, 2008 interview with Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter Russell Carollo. Russell had just written the Suspect Soldiers series for the Sacramento Bee, which followed the story of 16 Iraq-era soldiers and Marines who ran into trouble with the law and or the military. Some had troubled histories before they joined the service, while others carried that trouble through their service and back into civilian life. But you can only hear that by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, that's patreon.com slash thisishell, where you get an entire additional This Is Hell every week just for subscribing. Help us finish our studio and make this show sustainable. We also want to thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell online. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. This Is Hell, your home for futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have Jeffy on the line. You know what to do. Will the truth appeal if unadorned with lies? Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I foresee a return to an in-person cash economy, and furthermore, a return to in-person communities. Why is that? Here, I'll explain a little my utopian notion. We have a president who is a fraudulent man. That is, even the facade that he's a man is a fraud. He literally cannot utter two sentences without lying, and even when he's even when what he's saying is trivial, he manages to make you feel you're being lied to. It's a beautiful day, really. It's just one of those beautiful days. I don't believe you. And I'm right here in the day with you. Forget this. I'm going inside. It must be raining guano or something. This is more than a constitutional crisis or a crisis of faith in the press and government. This is the rubber chickens come home to roost. This is a crisis of reality. We can't have this much reality be in question. It's too much. I'd rather just have the old worries like under Reagan that we were going to die in a nuclear holocaust. That's existential. This crap is existentialist. Felicity Huffman, so woke playing that trans person, so woke that she bought her kids way into college. Well, that's what rich people do. But not always fraudulently, not always by committing illegal lying because it's not always necessary to lie illegally. Because behind the lie of merit-based anything is the embarrassing obscenity that money trumps merit. Money trumps truth. That fire festival, its roots go all the way back to Barnum. It's entertaining that people with too much disposable income and gullibility and lousy taste in music got taken in such a public way. They were promised entertainment, and lo and behold, they became entertainment. Turns out that even if the product is a $250,000 festival ticket, the product is you. We now have a two-decades legacy of facade masquerading as substance. It's been over 20 years since people made millions on companies that were made of nothing. The tech bubble burst back then, but it's never really gone away. Vaporware is normal now. Vapor everything. And we haven't learned our lesson at all. Not from the tech bubble. Not from the housing bubble. It's all a fraud bubble. But we won't admit it. Trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth is just ether. It's nothing. There is no there there, no there anywhere. I ask you, oh, wise people, where is there any there? It's the economy of lies. But economy has drenched every corner of contemporary human existence. We are a society of lies, not a society of laws. A lie can obviously trump the law. We're a society of lies, not simulations, lies. 
we may indeed be living in a simulation. We can't do anything about that. But we don't have to tolerate all these lies, this atmosphere, this firmament of lies. We can punch through it, punch the face of the God of lies. We have fraud laws. We have laws against misrepresentation. What we need is laws against plain old lying about stuff, lying to cheat people of their money or labor or attention. Why is it legal to lie outright? I don't care if it's a matter of opinion that the new barf burger tastes just like real caviar. It's a lie. A six-inch sandwich doesn't measure six inches because six-inch is just the name, not a guarantee of a number of inches. Axe Body Spray will not make throngs of blonde, brunette, and red-haired women chase after you. That is a dramatization of an adolescent heterosexual male fantasy. They presented it in order to tap into your anxieties and desires around sex, procreation, companionship, and ultimately mortality. Also, women don't segregate into herds according to hair color. As I've said before, this is our educational system, advertising, lies, indoctrination through lies into the lying culture, the lie of patriarchy, the lie of money, and what it means about one's own value as a person, just lies all the time. You may say to yourself, but I don't pay attention to advertising. Do you pay attention to anything? Because it's all advertising. Some of it more, some less, but it's all advertising. A pickle? Advertising. A homemade pickle? Advertising for the DIY lifestyle. A 6th century pre-Islamic poem about onions? Advertising. A mountain? A mountain in the middle of the Sahara Desert that no human being has ever laid eyes on? How could that be advertising? It is advertising. I don't know how, but it is advertising. And as yet undiscovered asteroid in a galaxy on the other side of the universe? Is that a question? What do you think the answer is going to be? Yes, it's advertising. Advertising was the, it's what the universe is made of. It's the fabric of space-time, down to the very Planck level, then how can we fight the lies, you ask? How should I know? Brands. It's brands. That's the real culprit. We're all brands. Everything's a brand. No more brands. Brands are edifices of lies. Lies are the bricks of which brands are built. We are slave laborers for the pharaoh of lies, lugging giant stones to build monuments to liars. Our ability to divine fact from fiction and act rationally in response has not progressed beyond the ancient Egyptians, beyond the first Homo sapiens. I started this out by predicting a return to an in-person cash economy. There's just too much distance in air and space between what you've Prom, what you what you are promised and what you receive, you need to close that gap. But I think on the way to explaining my prediction, things got a little out of hand. I'm sorry, this is so incoherent. Remember, I've done nothing but eat, drink, and breathe lies from the moment I was born. So navigating my way out of a ubiquitous epistemological fluid is probably beyond me. I'm no genius. I'm not even smart. That's just my brand. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, that was exceptional, my friend. That was exceptional. <laughs> that was... <laughs> oh, I almost just swore. I almost just swore. That's how good it was. Don't ever swear. All right. We're up against the clock, my friend. Werewolves, not swearwolves. <laughs> Stay beautiful. Bye. Live from land stolen from the natives. This is Hell. The best way for you to get the word out about This is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports online. We have a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of the people who shared the show this week. Thanks to Ronaldo, Astrid, Julie, Robert, Randell, Michael, James, Rob, all the people who shared last week's interview with Sajini K. Reddy on de-schooling, including Junked, 
J-U-N-C-T, Rebellion, Jeff with one F, Luis, Gorilla Gramophonics, Martin, Kathleen, Shane, someone's name that's in Greek, so I can't read it, and Black Rose Book Distro. Also, thanks for sharing the show. This week goes to the listeners who shared our talk on pleasure activism with Adrienne Marine Brown from last week, including Jesse, Nick, Nora, Jeffrey, and a ton of you shared our talk on pleasure activism anonymously. And finally, thanks to everyone who uh, shared the show or any of our interviews or segments, including thanks to Pete and Anarcha Media. Thanks to everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share our show or any of its content. We truly appreciate your support. Office Hours, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Happen every Wednesday night from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. And tomorrow is the big St. Patrick's Day brouhaha at Carrie's starting at 3 p.m. at the same time as the uh, closing reception for the art show that's taking place in the Art Gallery, Second Story Studios, upstairs from Carrie's Lounge. It's the uh, art gallery that we share the space with upstairs. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, who do we have booked for next week? Uh, Flint Taylor will be here to talk about The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago from Haymarket Books. And Ben Turk and Colleen Hackett will be on to talk about their chapter in Abolishing Carceral Society, Shifting Carceral Landscapes, Decarceration, and the Reconfiguration of White Supremacy. And that is from the same uh, book that Sidney K. Reddy was talking about de-schooling last week. So we're continuing that series. And Flint's book will be the book we are giving away as the uh, prize for next week's Question from Hell winner. So tune in for that. This is hell where the coolest musicians get their news. I want to thank everybody for being on this week's show, including uh, American Anarchist, living and working in Santiago, Chile, Bree Busk, who talked to us about Chilean feminism. Uh, thanks to student activists Anya Sastry and Isabella Johnson, who are state leads of climate or Youth Climate Strike Illinois. You can follow Youth Climate Strike Illinois on Twitter at Climate Strike IL, and you can find out more about Youth Climate Strike at youthclimatestrikeus.org. We want to thank uh, returning guest Candace Burned, who talked to us about her Truth Out article, A Tribal Camp in South Texas is Vowing to Resist Trump's Wall. Also, thanks to uh, Roar Magazine founder, scholar, essayist, commentator, political economist Jer Jerome Roos, who is author of Why Not Default, The Political Economy of Sovereign Debt. If you did not hear that interview, we'll be posting that shortly as we post the entire show online. But that is definitely something worth reading so you can understand why everybody, why all nations, no matter how poor, continue to service their debts even at the detriment of their own citizenry. And thanks to Lucas Kerner for coming back on the show, also for the third time, uh, to discuss his writing over a Venezuela analysis, including the global left and the danger of a dirty war in Venezuela. This week's Hangover Cure is Chips. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. This is not the media. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, Focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh -huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.